Welcome to Moralia Python Radio with your hosts, Eric Burke and Owen McIntyre. All right, welcome to uh, another episode of Morelia Python Radio. And tonight, um, my co-host is not here. He is uh, helping uh, the fiance down in Florida do some stuff, looking at Dunn's Pythons, uh, as I'm sure he's <laughs> down there drooling. Uh, but uh, we have uh, my good uh, friend Rob Stone here to join us. And uh, we'll be getting, um, I don't even know his, I don't know his full name. Uh, Rob, please enlighten me. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we're going to be joined by Tom Weaver, who's the curator of reptiles and fish at Denver Zoo, and who is uh, was my business partner 20 years ago, 20 to 10 or so years ago. Um, so we've done, you know, been there and back together. And um, yeah, he's a great friend of mine, and this will be the first time having him on the podcast. Interestingly, I think this is the first time that it's you and I together. I've yeah. done it with <laughs> but you and I haven't done it together. No, 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 no. This is true. Uh-oh. We're a week away from Australia. Uh, you know, uh, podcast is uh, Owenless. Right. They're not, uh, <laughs> what's going on? I don't know. What's going on, man? Um, so yeah, well, I, I have a question for you before we get into it, but I just wanted to say I'm a little nervous, um, because I have females that may be dropping eggs the day I leave, so <laughs> I might be calling in some favors. Um, yeah, it should be, uh, it should be right to the wire, man. It's, whew, it's got me a little nervous, but <clears throat> we'll be okay. We'll be okay. Uh, yeah, totally, man. I mean, well, heck, you know, the the good news, right, is that Owen's, you know, he's not super close, but he'll be he'll be around. And then Matt is much closer, and he definitely knows his way around some pythons and eggs. And even then, that's just sort of a a fallback, right? I think you're you're going to do MI. The uh, ideally, you'll do MI with those snakes anyway, right? Well, this is uh, this goes to another point to carpet pythons, in my opinion. But uh, you know, you can even have clutches being laid and not be there, and still not really worry too much. Um, but <laughs> us Morelia people, we're a little bit of control freaks, and uh, yeah, sure. Uh, and I'm the you would you want to leave them, but you want to know that it's fine. Yes. at the same time. <laughs> yes, I want to yeah. know that she's on them. You know, and I don't know if. Uh, Dory is up to that challenge quite yet, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> right. I didn't, with I didn't the, with that part. the travel time and stuff, you know, it's uh, it's we go dark for a little bit, you know, it's it will be that's when you know, it's gonna in be in LA or whatever, yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's like you're you're scrambling to see if there's a picture of show me a picture of what it looks like, yeah. So eggs should be laid on 318, <laughs> which is the day we leave. Uh, yeah, luckily, man. my flight is at uh, four o'clock, so usually they're laying eggs <laughs> early in the morning. But uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that that sounds pretty good, man. We'll we'll see. It'll be okay either way. It'll it'll definitely be, you know, an exciting exciting story, another twist, and it is always that sort of stuff that makes the babies that much more special. You yeah, know, yeah. special place in your heart. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that's cool. And I got my diamond pythons breeding, man. They breed like, oh my God, there's no tomorrow, man. I, I, I gave them a meal, warmed them up. Uh, first 70 degree day since October was today. 
uh, here, so uh, here in Pennsylvania. But uh, yeah, they're, they're they locked up. They were locked up for like like twelve hours. <laughs> like, holy <laughs> shit, man! So that's awesome. <clears throat> yeah, we've had our own little kick of warmth here too. It's been strange, you know. And then it's uh, yeah. I don't I don't know here. That just means it's going to be warm for some period of time. And even though it'll say the ten day shows in the sixties or whatever, um. You know, it could change the show, show snow tomorrow, and I wouldn't be all that surprised. But um, it has been it has been warm here too. I, so I, yeah, I'm not. It's definitely a fake spring. We'll definitely get more snow, but it's a question of when. <laughs> you know, gotcha. so. <laughs> gives you a little tease and then smacks you in yeah. the face again. All right, fair enough. Um, <clears throat> but we did the uh, we did the show with uh, with Garrett, and we talked about localities and. Uh, you know, we got a lot of uh, positive. Well, actually, it was a lot of positive feedback. But localities and bloodlines and 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 whatnot. What what were your thoughts on the on the whole idea? Yeah. So I enjoyed the show. I mean, it's it's interesting. I, man, Omac came ready to play, which was great. I, I don't know if it was because it was some, about something other than you know a slightly outside the norm or applying outside the norm two carpets or what, but or if it was just going to see. Yeah, he's a retic driver. You know, maybe it was going down to Florida to see his gal. I I don't know what, but he was ready to play, man. So that was great. Yeah. You know, that was super exciting. Um, substantively, I thought, yeah, a ton of good stuff there. It, you know, it raises these questions of whether the perpetual questions right around inbreeding and if you whether it's line breeding within localities or if we just don't have that many, you know, founder animals. All that stuff comes into play. I know personally, I kind of follow Bob Applegate's thoughts on this, that sort of if there's nothing, and I've seen it too with other things, you know, mice, working them at Pro Exotics and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. if there's not any deleterious genes in the population, absent random mutation that pops up something deleterious, it's like an an insular boa, right? Any sort of negative traits have been bred out over time and, in fact, where you're more likely to run into problems is if you're taking animals, uh, if you start with sort of a diverse gene pool and then you're just breeding those animals back to one another, any deleterious genes haven't necessarily been bred out. You're kind of recombining them by putting together the, popul- the artificial captive population. Whereas if you're talking about locality retics uh, that are genu- legitimately from a single cave like uh, Garrett was talking about, mm-hmm. right? Those things have been bred for X number of years, presumably if we're talking about something with a refined look, a, a particular look, whether it's gray bands or retakes in a particular cave on some tiny island or whatever it is, we're talking thousands or ten th- tens of thousands of years, of that population being winnowed down to only those animals that do well. And you can actually... I forget what the this the exact speed. It was a North American colubrid, a pantherophis something, a black rat snake, something like that, right. that had been line bred for thirty generations oh. of just siblings bred to one another for thirty generations, wow. and there were no problems at all because there was nothing bad in there. It just so happened that the original pair of snakes, there were no deleterious you know, recessive genes or even you know sort of polygenic mixture things that would cause either lower fertility or, you know, getting neurological pro- developmental problems, any, any of these sorts of things. If the genes aren't 
in the founder population to cause those problems, then you're not going to have those problems. Right. Absent, again, random mutation, right? That, that You could get it from random mutation, but presumably then that just requires you as the breeder to notice that right. and then not – not maintain breeding that trait, you know, breeding that, that, and if you get uh, part of that, right. When you're saying, okay, for 30 generations, continually breeding this line of black rat snakes, I think then you just, ha- if you, you would only, you wouldn't just pick any two random siblings. You would choose the most, the two most robust, vigorous animals uh, from the clutch, raise those up and breed those together. Right. And I know, Bob Apple, it was either it was either Bob Applegate or Terry that was talking about Terry Phillip that was talking about this. It's entirely possible, just just thinking about it, that we're talking about thirty years of doing that as opposed to thirty generations, you know, which would be more like nine or ten generations. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm not a thousand. I know what I heard, but I don't. Uh, if people would question that and say, "Oh, that doesn't sound legit," but the the point holds whether it is eight generations, ten generations, twenty generations, whatever it, whatever it is, right? The point holds that if there's not um, those deleterious genes, and you're uh, being a conscientious breeder who's watching for that stuff, then it really shouldn't shouldn't be a problem. On the other hand, right? We have stuff. What what's the line of carpets that I have, you and I have talked about this before, but there was that line of carpets, and you got them from Blake Bauer. The Sylvester line. Yeah, I was going to bring Sylvester this up. line. Yeah. <clears throat> right. So this is the opposite situation to, right. to my mind or impression, is that, um, you know, it, I understand we all we want as many lines as possible, and it's always, oh, we got to keep the bloodlines around and all this stuff. And believe me, I, I'm as much... That's much of the appeal, at least to me, of Condros, right, is the story, is the narrative associated with it saying, I have a snake that's seven generations removed from having been a resident of the National Zoo or Philly Zoo or, or whatever. You know, that's that's sure. part of the appeal right. to me um, uh, of those snakes. So I, I totally get the appeal and saying, oh, we need Sylvester line carpets. Well, one thing that w- was notable, right, is that Blake said, oh, yeah, I produced that litter that you got some out of, and then all of them developed big – all of his adults developed big tumors and died, so he didn't have any of them. Yeah. And then talked to you that you had the same problem. You lost an animal to tumors, and someone else, maybe it was Nick, also lost one to tumors and all this stuff. Well, we know it's been proven in um, you know, the hot trot item, right, Mexican Black Kings, I think – uh, getting fibrosarcoma uh, tumors, right, and having there's some genetic predisposition to tumors in certain lines of snakes, and one of them happened to be in a, a line of Mexican black kings from the 80s. Um, and I had heard this from Roger Klingenberg when I had seen I had a rhino that was presenting weirdly. We've talked about it before, but this would this is going years back, and we had some discussion of saying, okay, is there genetic predisposition to certain types of tumors, and where they're consistent like that, there is. So with Sylvester line carpets, it's cool to say Sylvester line carpets and to have uh, all of these unrelated snakes, but in reality, that probably was a pairing where at least one of those founder animals had a, predis- a, a deleterious gene up you know, predisposition to develop these tumors. And the reason that we don't have them in captivity now is because of that very fact. So inherent in the genes of that line is the reason we don't have it anymore. 
and no one really conceives of it that way. That was sort of the one bit that's, I guess, different to Retix in the way they've been worked with as a uh, Garrett talked about it in terms of the pillars uh, and one of those being size, right? Yeah. A, a difference with carpets is that kind of this construction of saying, oh, he, he mentioned repeatedly, if it's more than 50%, then it counts as a, not as a locality, but as a super dwarf or a dwarf or whatever, rel- whatever was applicable. Sure. Uh, kind of talking about it in the species concept. And I'm just in hearing that, that sounds very different than sort of the carpet situation. Maybe, I mean, you guys hit on it too, of not talking about them in terms of size so much. Like we have ideas of what different things turn into size-wise, but not not really using that as a selective factor. But mm-hmm. that, that was sort of weird. And I, I don't think you would see a clean crossover on that in terms of carpets of saying, oh, yeah, well, this is, you know, 51%. Um, Brisbane coastal. So we can call it like a large, you know, a larger snake, you know, instead of, it's not a dwarf, it's giant or something, you know, like, Oh, this is a, you know, half giant coastal or something. And it's like, we don't see anything like that. And that's not to to, um, negate what they're doing, but that was definitely a profound difference in terms of you know, seeking, okay, well, what are the commonalities with how carpets work and how they're perceived in the marketplace? And then the retake stuff he was describing, that, that was quite different. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, a, it was a good conversation and, uh, you know, uh, definitely a ton of info as far as retakes go in there. And, uh, you know, if you're uh, curious about that, uh, I would definitely check that episode out. Um, but, uh, yeah, and and you know the whole the whole, you know the the pillars and I, I I don't know if this came across when I when I was saying this in the show, but the the three pillar things is it's it's the the difficulty with that with carpets is is that you know most of the stuff that you trace back, um, eventually, you come to a dead end whether or not that person is not alive anymore or, um, you know. They're just not going to share information. Yeah, so this uh, it reminds me, right, of my perpetual uh, frustration that people think that all Australian reptiles are here in the United States illegally or that there's no legitimate means by which they're here. And that's it's commonly bandied about. Everyone jokes about it. And often it's – it's even people who work with those snakes, which is just sort of weird and funny to me. And I, I totally get it. it. It's a fun joke to make and kind of we conceive of it that way, but that's not really the case. Mm-hmm. And so what can happen here to the point you're making is that it's not only that maybe the person can't tell you for legality purposes uh, or that they're dead, Lloyd Lemke, and sort of there's a break in the chain. And obviously they came from somewhere, but we don't really know where. But it also could be, it really reminds me of the uh, Curtin's Russian Red Tigers thing, right? There there are numerous issues that, that come up with that. And I, I know uh, really their locality carpets and all this stuff. But what it gets to is... Those are legitimately, you know, those are cleared uh, 3177 paperwork, totally approved importation stuff. So it's not it's not a problem, but they are coming from a source that either based on sort of the meets and bounds of the 
public, uh, how public facing the institution is willing to be. Mm -hmm. uh, there can be just sort of this gray, it can be coming out of a black box. It can be totally legitimate, but it's just coming from an institution that isn't really in the business of selling to the pet trade. And so they aren't interested or able uh, to convey kind of all the information that they have about those animals when they pass them on. Instead, they it's just easier, if nothing else, to send them to a wholesaler who can then sell them uh, on their own, right? But just saying, well, they're from an institution in Europe. Well, that, that only works, right, to the extent that people are willing to accept that. And people looking at beautiful snakes and trusting the people uh, involved right, can accept that. And then 15 or 20 years later, people who don't even know maybe who the importer was or the people, the parties involved, right, they they don't have that same trust. They don't say, oh, well, I know that guy. And so if that guy says they're totally legit, totally legal, I just can't tell you, mm -hmm. then the people 20 years down the track don't accept that nearly as well, particularly no. when they, <laughs> they don't even know the people involved. And so then it's just easier to conceive of it as, oh, it must be because they were smuggled. And it's, no, that's not inherently the answer. Right. right. And I, those Russian red tigers is a great example of that where it's like, okay, I think, well, hundred percent, those were imported legally. So there you go. There's an Australian snake that's in the United States captive, you know, pet trade hundred percent legitimately. And that's obviously in addition to the albino olive pythons, albino Darwin's rough scale there, there are a ton of examples where that's the case. So sure. it's always, it sort of drives me nuts when people are like, Oh, it's an Australian thing. It must be a little, Legal, right. um, and that, in a in a weird way, and maybe it is just from sort of perception. I feel like we get that more amongst keepers in the U.S. even than you know your Australian listeners reaching out and saying, um, "Oh well, you guys can't have those." There are a few exceptions that I know. You know, some of the Aussie folks that I know, uh, <laughs> sort of a hot button issue. Uh, oh well, we're talking about that species. You know, I know Scott's always good for a. <laughs> Yeah, Scott's, Scott's good for a few of those where he'll say, um, yeah, those weren't even described as a species until things were long closed and have never been legally shipped out. And that, that's fine, but there are plenty of other things, and there are certainly things that have come over illegally, 100%. I, I know that. I'm not naive. But the notion that, to try and make a blanket statement that every Australian reptile that we're working with in the United States is descended 100% from illegal or smuggled animals is patently false. That is, I can, just by giving a single example, right, I negate that statement, and I can do it with a dozen different things. Sure. My Darwins have CITES paperwork. So, right. You know. Yeah. I, there you go. I mean, I actually have <laughs> the same CITES way. paperwork. It, right. Yeah, totally. It's like, well, I know it's not, you can't make that as a blanket 100% statement because here's a single exception, and by making a blanket statement, you're necessarily, you know, defeatable with a single exception. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. <clears throat> I, I think I mentioned in there, so what, you're curator of reptiles and fish, right, at this point? I'm calling it curator of ectotherms. <laughs> I changed that I changed that title since my boss retired to ectotherms. So yeah, I'm over <laughs> reptiles, amphibians, fish, invertebrates, and a, a few mammals. And it's kind of... It's kind of a new trend in zoos to um, that title, the curator of ectotherms. And it's it's uh, it confuses people and they don't know what you're talking about. But when you explain it to them, right. they uh, 
they understand it. Okay. So is like the setup there, like, um, is it, uh, I forget what they call it, to where like they'll have uh, an exhibit from an, a, a specific area where it's a mix of different types of species rather than just like a reptile building or a mammal building or something like that? Well, our building is uh, it's called Tropical Discovery, and it's uh, it's a uh, basically a um, exhibit to represent the tropics. Okay. So a lot of my a lot of my collection. I mean, um, I do have some stuff that are you know that are not from the tropics, but it's basically um, was built in the '90s, and it's uh, a rainforest slash aquarium. And it's very much, um, uh, it's, it was at the time when, like, we built our exhibit and then, like, Henry Dorley Zoo in Omaha built this exhibit at the same time. But it's more collection-oriented. It's, it's, if you get back into the evolution of zoos, you have, like, they spawned from museum collections. So you have, like, species after species after species. Right. And then, you know, in the 80s, late 80s and 90s, zoos started building um, geographical exhibits to where um, either you, you have exhibit with everything from a, you know, a specific area of the world or you build um, something. So we have, you know, basically animals from all over the world that are um, – from the tropics, and we like to really represent biodiversity and protecting biodiversity. So we have everything from, you know, a tarantula to a howler monkey to Komodo dragons to, and then they, you know, they decided to build part of it to be a cypress area. So we have like southeastern United States where we have a lot of, um, you know, eastern diamondback rattlesnakes, timber rattlesnakes. Um, so yeah, so. My building is a representation of the tropics. It's um, focused on, uh, we have nine keepers, we have uh, one maintenance tech, and then we have like five sections. So basically I like to look at it as if you work, it's kind of hard to hire people for it because most people are really focused on one or the other. Right. We're not a big, we're a zoo aquarium and we're not a big aquarium. Our biggest uh, exhibit is like a 16,000 um, gallon, you know, uh, Pacific Pacific reef tank. Um, so anybody that works in my building, I'd like to think that they could either assess a fish tank for health and handle a rattlesnake. Okay. So it brings some, you know, when I hire people, I have to look at the uniqueness as far as like, if you're coming from Georgia Aquarium and want to work with whale sharks, you're not going to do it at the Denver Zoo. <laughs> right. But you can be a herpetologist that is focused on, you know, venomous species, but you can also go over and hang out with the other keeper and figure out how their, you know, discus breeding programs going. So it's kind of it's a lot of fun. Because you get a yeah, it keeps it fresh, right? I mean, learning new stuff. And... Well, I have an course that you know. I'm like, can you build me a spaceship tonight? And he's like, yep. And tomorrow morning I'll come in and there'll be like this, you know, like elaborate exhibit or elaborate setup that is like, um, it wasn't really his expertise, but he knows how to build it. Gotcha. So it's it's fun. It's fun in that sense. 
So I guess uh, we'll go back to the beginning. Like, how did you get started with reptiles and how did you get into the zoo field? And I guess, how did you and Rob uh, meet? How far do you want me to go back? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, you know, I don't know. How did you get your start? I care you. That's the standard, yeah, the standard sort of starting point. I grew up in uh, farm country in Nebraska. Okay. You know, hunting and fishing, loving the wildlife. I went to school at Northern Colorado, and uh, I started out, I had, uh, I guess I can say this, I had three careers in mind. I was either going to be a fireman, a zookeeper, or a heavy metal lead guitar player. Ah. And somehow I fell. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I... um, Started out, I graduated from college. Well, I went to college and I was in the business school and that wasn't working. Um, and I switched over to the biology department and then I started really loving biology and obviously my grades got a lot better because of my interest. And as I got a bachelor's degree in like field biology. Um, when I graduated, I went to um, southern Mexico. Um, over, you know, we did a trip into Belize and I went with a botanist that I fell in love with the rainforest um, down there. And it was like, I just it blew my mind. I was like, I had no idea that this, this world existed. Um, and then when I graduated, I had worked at a small children's zoo in Nebraska um, that was tiny. It was like, you know, five, eight acres. I don't, I don't know how big it was, but I basically started, and when I was in college, I worked at the uh, Rocky Mountain Raptor Center in Fort Collins, and my first love was raptors. I was going to be a, I was going to be a falconer. I was going to be a raptor person. And then, when I graduated, I came back home, and the reptile keeper was leaving, and I was like, all right. So I got like a seven dollar an hour job at the Grand Allen Heritage Zoo, and basically took over the largest collection of reptiles in Nebraska at the time, mm-hmm. um, which was pretty incredible. And the reason why was we were really connected with reptile gardens up in, in Rapid City, South Dakota. Sure. And um, they were helping us. Um, that connection or collaboration was like I had a killer um, reptile collection in a very small zoo in Nebraska, which is unheard of. Right. Um, especially with with Henry Dorley and that zoo being you know a very prestigious world renowned zoo, um, but um, so I started there. The reptile keeper was leaving, and he mentored me into the program there. And, and at a small zoo in Nebraska, I had um, cobras, I had you know South American rattlesnakes, I had um, a lot of really cool stuff, and I I would go up to Reptile Gardens every you know, four or five times a year and train and swap back animals and bring back stuff. If I bred stuff, I'd take it up there and everything. And I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. I was young. I was right out of college. And it's like here, um, here here's a collection of really hot snakes in your, <laughs> in your 20s, and here you go. <laughs> and um, I went up to Reptile Gardens and would do training, uh-huh. and uh, basically on crocodilian and venomous handling and stuff like that. 
Um, but like the first time I went up there, I called it reptile boot camp because it was like <laughs> the first day I was walking around with um, Don Middow, who was like my first mentor. And a reptile gardens, I mean, it's, I mean, you could be, you could be handling a nine foot king cobra or a black mamba or a taipan, right. you know, and I was like, just like infused into this world. And I was like the first day I was walking around and I was touching everything. I was like putting my hands on lids. I was like, like opening doors and like, I went to go pick up this common <laughs> boa constrictor and Don like slapped my hand and he goes, <clears throat> You don't know that animal. You don't know what type. You know. You don't know the potential of that animal, and because you can't just walk around and do that. And so he basically made me stand in the corner corner of the, of the building with my hands in my pockets. Oh shit! Okay. And he and he broke it down. And he was like, um, "Some people have natural reptile handling ability, and some people don't." He said, "You don't." <laughs> and he said, "You're gonna." He goes you're going to have to learn it. And, and it, it was crushing to my ego, Sure. but um, that's how I learned. I mean, you know, when you, when you work, talk about hand, working around really, you know, hot elapids and, and vipers and stuff, I was like, okay, I have to really listen to this guy. And um, he was a total like hurt nerd. I mean, he lived, I mean, I would stay in his trailer on reptile gardens and like we'd have like I wanted to take a shower and we have to pull a snapping turtle out of the bathtub. Oh. And this guy like <laughs> lived and breathed reptiles. Right. And it was uncomfortable and it was like I don't I don't I'm not sure I'm into this, but but it really taught me, you know, the, the basics of learning learning reptiles language and learning how to be around them and then like throw out your I guess your anthropomorphic views right? and like, don't think like a human, think like that animal. If that animal, like I say today, when I'm training keepers and stuff, I was like, if that animal doesn't strike out and try and bite you when you open the enclosure, there might be something wrong with the animal because that's, that's a natural behavior for that animal. Cause that animal knows when you're opening that door, potentially it's going to get fed. And I explained to people like, and when you're, when you're talking to, you know, the, our guests and the public, it's like, if you open up that cage and you feed that animal, you open up that cage, you feed that animal, you open up that cage, you feed that animal. And then the next time you open that cage and you want to go pick it up and, and handle it, what's going to happen? You're probably going to get bit. Right. That's your fault because um, you're not thinking like that animal. So I, I worked at Reptile Gardens for quite a while. Um, back and forth, had a collection in Nebraska that I, I was just learning. And then uh, I met my late wife, Erica, and she, and she came from Florida. And there was an opening up at Laurie Park Zoo in Tampa. And I was like, Florida? Hell yeah. I mean, I'm from Nebraska. And it's like, <laughs> reptiles in Florida is like a dream come true. Right. And uh, so I, I went up there. Um, got a keeper job, and that was a reptile and aquatics department also, but it was mostly native stuff, okay. except for like Komodo dragons. Um, learned a lot about aquatics up there and had some good crocodilian experience and just enjoyed Florida for its herping, you know, 
availability. I mean, you can like I was catching yellow rat snakes and stuff in my patio, and it was like <laughs> I came home one day and my wife was like, "Come see what I got," and I was like, "What? What is it?" She had a uh, like a three foot alligator in a dog crate <laughs> wow. in the garage. <laughs> I was like, "Where? What, how is this happening?" Because it was running across her backyard. Um, so she was a, she was a zookeeper also, so she knew how to handle animals. But right. um, worked in Florida, exposed to everything down there, um, both in herpetology and herpiculture. Did Daytona, you know, went to Daytona every year. And Rob, when I moved back to Colorado, you know, Rob and I had that connection where we'd go down. I don't know how many shows did we do down there with our private collection. Um, yeah, we'd go down probably there like, like four or five. Yeah, something. Yeah, and we we go down there and hang out with you know all the herpers down there. And then uh, I decided, or we decided that I wanted to get back closer to home. There's a keeper position open at the Denver Zoo, which going from I had worked my way up to assistant curator at Lari. And um, zoos are across the board. There, there's many. It's just kind of like the private sector. There's it's multifaceted. There's there's good people. There's bad people. There's good zoos and there's bad zoos. And um, when you look at like where I'm working at now at the Denver Zoo, it's an AGA American Zoological Association accredited zoo that has a ton of standards. We get accredited every five years. And Lowry Park was, was accredited also. But when you work, so I've worked at a small zoo, a medium zoo, and a large zoo, or a close to large zoo, um, which I'm at Denver now. And you see, you know, the more um, stuff that goes on, it's like, how professional is your, you know, facility? Are you, um, like when AGA comes through every five years, it's like, I want to see your finances. I want to see your animal welfare um, projects. I want to see your enrichment training product, you know, projects and stuff like that. So it's um, basically I've worked up all the way up to a, a, a big zoo that has a lot of uh, um, oversight mm -hmm. to what we do with our animals. And it's, I mean, not only that, but just from, be, I've been, zookeeping and curating for over 20, 22 years now. And it's like to see the evolution of that and where I work at now, not only with, with how we take care of our animals, but also the conservation, you know, messaging we're doing the, the, the um, like right now we're, we're developing a strategic plan on where we want to be in the next five years. Um, and there's a lot, it's a lot more work to be able to be like, um, you know, we're really looking at like, we're doing animal welfare assessments and we have a whole program that we're doing now to where we look at, okay, I have this Gaboon Viper in this enclosure and it's it doesn't move. And, you know, I think you could refer to it as like captive stagnicity. Okay. And, you know, when I'm talking with our director of animal welfare and I'm like, well, you need to, enrich it you need to uh, like give it stuff to move around and and make choices and you know, give it choices to be able to do what it wants and i'm like well that gaboon viper in the wild studies have been done that that animal will sit by a prey trail for a month and it will drink water off its back and if it, there's no 
prey coming by, it'll move to another place and it will sit. And I'm like, that's, you know, we have to take that into consideration with our animal welfare and the natural history of the animal that, you know, I, I joke, never do this, never say this to an animal <laughs> behaviorist, but okay. I joke that our animals thrive from, some of our animals thrive from our benign neglect. And don't ever say that to a behaviorist because they don't understand it, but it's a herpological joke right. <laughs> to where, you know, if you got something going on, if you got a breeding program going on and you're, like I have uh, a Therese uh, serratifora, Okay. The uh, African bush viper, it eats once a month. Right. And if you feed it more than that, you're probably gonna ha- it's probably gonna die from fatty liver. And it's like, I like this is where we're at with zoos is like this is a big hot topic amongst zoos of developing their animal welfare assessments. And it's like, you know what? That animal thrives better if I don't touch it ever, and I leave it alone and do the minimum maintenance on it compared to like, like I have a howler monkey that has, um, you know, howler monkey capybara exhibit that those animals are a lot more needy mm-hmm. and not needy, but they need more attention. And, and when you work in zoos, you compare, like if you work with great apes, that is an entirely different deal. That is very emotional for the keepers. It's very, um, they have to be aware of what's going on with their animals and they develop like personal relationships, which we do too as herpetologists or archaeologists, but it's more, it's a different style. And you have to also look at if I'm an elephant keeper, I have five animals that are 12,000 pounds each. And one of my staff in my building, I have over 300 species, maybe 2,000 specimens. So it's a completely different type of style of keeping Mm -hmm. to where, you know, it's like the joke at the zoo is all the herpetologists always use Latin names and and they think they're smart. And it's like, well, (laughs) that little brown frog has 15 different common names for it. Right. And that's just kind of the way it goes. But so... um, yeah, basically, I, I moved to Denver. I got a keeper job. I, I worked my way up. It took 10 years to become assistant curator, and then um, my boss retired as assistant curator, and then another six years where my other boss retired, and now I'm curator over, you know, the tropical discovery at the Denver Zoo. And it's uh, it took a long time. But now as curator... I feel like I'm sitting at the desk way too much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm basically doing paperwork. Trying to get to the top, and then, you know, you get there, and you're like, damn, I miss. <laughs> I, I can relate. Well, it's yeah. like I'll go down into procedures, you know, and uh, I'm like, I, like if somebody's t- tubing up a, a snake or something, I'm like, I feel like I want to take over. I want to, like, <laughs> jump in there and, and go, let me let me do this. You know, and uh, I mean, but but for my job now as being curator, I'm more overseeing like um, the big picture. You know, it's like um, you know collection planning. Where do we want to be in five years? What what do we want to focus on? 
what are we good at? You know, we're a small aquarium. We're not going to be doing big sharks. You know, we're not going to be having like Georgia Aquarium whale sharks here. Um, but what can we do here? Um, you know, so we kind of look at it as we're we are a big variety. Um, and like what I was saying with with the the museum model is we're more species species species. Like you look at one window jewel exhibit. Um, but if you go to like Henry Dorley, their jungle is more immersive and um, they don't have the muse museum type, um, you know, collection that you can go. If you're a herpetologist and you come to the Denver Zoo, you, you can walk through and go, that's a, that's a really good collection. But if you go to Omaha, it's like same type thing, but you may get, um, buzzed by a flying fox in the jungle, gotcha. you know, and it's like, it's more immersive. So that there's a lot of different types of, of ways you can do it. I enjoy ours because I think of the Denver Zoo. Being in Denver, um, we pride ourselves on our venomous snake collection, thanks to Bushmaster Reptiles and Cameron. Um, oh, okay. And uh, doing really smaller exhibits and like doing them really cool and like trying to do, you know, multi-species exhibits. And um, like I, Rob, you haven't seen this yet, but we just, I bought, uh, it, it's, it's a Halloween gag. And it's a lightning storm thing for, for Halloween that you put like on your front patio. <laughs> sure, yeah. And we have a, a exhibit with, uh, where they got Mexican dumpy tree frogs and Plica Plica, the uh, South American tree dwellers in it. And like three, three times a day, the lights shut off, it starts to rain, and you get this, we put these big speakers on it, and it, it has a rainstorm that comes through, like like what would happen in the rainforest. Oh, cool. And it turned out really cool. Was, I'm real proud of it. Awesome. But yeah, so, you know, like Rob and I had, um, high plains herpetoculture and I was very much into herpetoculture growing up and especially being in Florida with all the reptile shows and everything and I still am um, but I, my career focused me more into the zoological field which is more um, a conservation oriented um, the zoos are more are becoming more focused on like I do a big project in Peru with the Lake Titicaca frog. I did work in Central and South America with you know, in Panama I did work with um I'm still involved with that, but the uh, Panamanian golden frog. My career kind of focused me towards amphibians for some reason. Okay. Um and I think <laughs> I think because it was more um you know, I still know you know, when when you're curating over a huge collection in zoos, you know a lot of animals, but you can expertise in, you know, what you, what you want. And, you know, like I have a coral reef guy that's, that's an expert aquarist, and I lean on him to where if we're having issues, like I'll go look at a coral reef tank, and um, I don't see what he sees. I mean, I kind of look at it like he sees through a matrix. And he can see stuff going on there that I can't. Right. But, you know, for me, like I can go look at a frog and go, 
the frog's overweight or it's not, or it's not out competing the other tank mates, um, I would pull that frog and, and feed them up and see what's going on with that. Gotcha. And like a good example today is we have uh, a pair of uh, Dracaena, the caiman lizards. Mm-hmm. And um, the female was not eating. And she was like being sluggish. And we were, I was like, let's do an exam on her. Let's see what's going on. And they're, they're older. They're an older pair. But we went, took her down to the vet hospital and did x-rays on her. And she had snail shells compacting her. Mm-hmm. And and like we buy the snails from like Asian market, you know, the Asian market, the Asian grocery stores. And I was like, there you go. Good job. The keeper was like, something's going on. We should probably do a exam on her, see what's going on. And for some reason, she's eating the shells, which they usually don't. Okay. Um, but go ahead. No, you're good, man. Yeah. Um, so we gave her an enema, cleaned most of it out. And I was like, well, the fact that she's not digesting that or she's eating that shell is concerning to me because we've had them, I don't know, you remember when we got them, Rob, it's been eight years. Mm-hmm. And it's like something, something's going on. And, you know, I don't know what it is. You know, in a, lot, in a lot of sense, especially with fish, it's like sometimes you don't know what's going on and sometimes you fix it and you don't know what was going on and you don't know how to fix it. <laughs> right, right. You know. And then sometimes you figure it out. I know when you were talking about the aquarium stuff that um, you guys are doing there, I, I don't know if you, if the idea had come from someplace else, but I do remember it being a big success, that figuring out how to rear the baby seahorses, right, by getting them into a cylinder so they didn't just get trapped at the top. Yeah. Yeah, and that that's, you know, um, unfortunately, like, Recently, we had, um, I got in four Brookesia stumpfi um, um, that were wild caught. Um, not, they weren't a, a confiscation, which usually when you're dealing with confiscations, you got to realize that zoos, you know, when, when fish and wildlife get confiscations, they lean on zoos to help them out to get these animals. And usually by the time you get them, they're on death's door to begin with. And you, you, you're already into like a rehab type situation. Um, but we got four um, Brookesia through quarantine, which took about eight months because they were positive for coccidia, um, mm-hmm. which I don't know if we ever fixed it or not, or if they ever really had coccidia. Put four of them on, uh, those are the um, pygmy, I guess you call them pygmy chameleons or, or dwarf okay. chameleons put them on exhibit and one died right away. Right. And I was like, okay, so this is a wild caught animal that we quarantined and we cleaned it up. We had them in an area where they were um, in smaller exhibits. They weren't, there was no traffic around them. And then we put them on this bright new exhibit and they got all these humans peeking in on them. You know, I'm like, pull them, get them off. You know, the ones that, the two that survived, I'm like, get them off. Let's put them in holding and re rethink this because this might be a behind the scenes project. This might not be an exhibit because you're dealing with, you know, fragile animals. 
Right, in a way that you don't see, well, A, the outcry or reaction would be entirely different if that's a giraffe, but it also would be much less normal, right? It's much less normative, whereas you're relating that to Eric and I here, it's like, it's not all that surprising, right? It's not, I wouldn't have told you, oh, it'll definitely happen. You know, it's like, well, we, we try it and see, you know, because you don't know. How well, you, have go, to, you have to take um, chances, I think, you know, especially the right. rare stuff that's not found in collections, and sometimes yep. it doesn't work. It's like, it's like, why would you display a Kenyan sandbar? Right. It doesn't. Right. <laughs> it it doesn't do anything for anybody because the animal's under the sand. The public can't see it and learn about it. And you know, it's like, okay, that's. And they might see it. That's smart anyway. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> you yeah. know. Right. But Sarasis, the I don't know what Ethiopian viper. Right. I think. I mean, you can see their eyeballs coming out of the sand, and that's a great story. <laughs> Yeah. You know, they sit and wait for something to run over them and ambush them. Um, but you have to be able to display that to the public because that's, I think, what we're all about is teaching the public about animals that they are not aware of. I mean, I know this is like a herpological, like, you know, podcast, but when you're talking to the general public, right? I mean, I remember being in Florida and having somebody ask me what that animal is. I'm like, it's an alligator. How do you not know? <laughs> Living in Florida, how do you not know that's an alligator? So that's what you're dealing with. And you're also like, like I had uh, somebody come through and they're like, so do your animals survive the winter? Oh, wow. And I'm like, I mean, this is a zoo general thing. I'm like, what do you mean? I don't necessarily understand your question. He goes, like, do you, some of your birds die off because it's too cold? And I'm like, no. <laughs> That's, no, I don't, I don't know where to start that conversation with you. Because they have no idea what right. it takes to take care of animals. Yeah. <laughs> I can... Uh, totally. I can, I can relate to that in public. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, but, yeah. I mean, as far as, like, what, what I've seen in my career with the zoos... Um, you know, moving up at Denver Zoo and everything, um, we've gotten very, um, very good about in, internal collection planning. Like we are very much focused on when you work in zoos, you have AZA program animals like SSP programs, uh-huh. and um, you have uh, it's kind of I call it like a dating service for animals. It's like I have a Komodo dragon. Right. That is related to all my other Komodos. I'm going to send this male to St. Louis to, or no, I'll say Fort Worth, to breed with that animal because we're looking out for the genetics and not trying not to inbreed our animals. Sure. Um, population management, um, you know, for the next 100 years or 200 years. And with my focus on amphibians, it's turning more into um assurance populations and a good example is uh boreal toads boreal toads are found in colorado they're found in western united states they're above 7,000 feet in elevation and they are positive for a fungus called chytrid that's wiping them out um we 
took a lo locality from Utah called the Pugsigat Plateau, which potentially will, will be a new species. And we brought them in, um, separated them, isolated them, and raised them up for five, six years, um, tried to breed them naturally, tried to give them a hibernation at like 35 degrees. And if you ever talk to an amphibian keeper that's keeping toads in a refrigerator at 35 degrees, every day they come in, they're like, I hope I didn't freeze them. <laughs> you know, I hope, I hope the thermostat didn't break and now I got, you know, frozen toads. Um, reproduced them, and then uh, this is our first year for it. We we put them through. Well, we tried naturally for two years, and then we we got our uh, reproductive uh, specialist in there, and we did a hormone treatment on them, and we were able to breed them this year, and we released over 600 toads back into the wild in Utah, which is not a lot, but it's a good start. Um, totally, and that was. That to me was like, if you've ever reproduced an animal to put it back into the wild, I don't, I don't believe captivity is the answer. I don't think bringing animals into zoos and to try and, you know, keep them forever because we're starting to talk about with a lot of animals, you know, I've been referred to as like a uh, um, extinction biologist. You know, because, okay. like, we're dealing with species, especially with my work in Panama, um, and, you know, there's a lot of high-priority programs um, that it's like, we can't, there's no way, if zoos and aquariums and botanical gardens did everything they could to help save with the amphibian crisis, we could probably save 1% to 2% of you know, 6,000 species that are that are basically going into decline, except for like a bullfrog. <laughs> bullfrogs right. will take over the world. Um, <laughs> bullfrogs but to be able to, to, and cockroaches and coyotes. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, Rob and I know each other pretty good. Um, but um, yeah, it's definitely like, this isn't the answer. So zoos are kind of moving towards, we really need to be supporting infrastructure in developing countries that don't have it. And that's what I did in Panama, and that's what I've done in Peru, um, to where we go down there and we, we help support um, and fund these programs to where they can do it themselves. I mean, the end goal is to to walk away from it and be like, okay, we've given you all of your tools to be able to do this. I don't necessarily know if that's, that really will, will work in the long run. But uh, yeah, so like I've built facilities in Panama for the Panamanian golden frog and other 16 other species. Like with the global amphibian crisis, we're looking at 50% of all of our of globally of, of what we have that is in decline or probably going to go extinct. And that kills me because my highest priority is saving biodiversity. And it's getting to a point where, I mean, it's depressing, but it's also kind of job security, if you want to put it that way. Sure. Um, but I just got three species of harlequin toads from 
Ecuador that were brought into captivity by a, a sensor in um, Quitos called the Ambatu Center. And um, these, these species have not been seen in the wild since the early 90s. Wow. And to me, that's, that's pretty incredible that we still have them. But the question is, is there a wild left to put them back into? Right. And that's, that's where, you know, you get to the point where you're like, I mean, you almost get to the point with, with some species, you're like, is this worth saving? Are we spending too much resources on the species that we know it's, you know, done. Wyoming toad is a good example. Wyoming toad um, is found in two ponds and right. it's positive for the fungus. And we had a collaboration with AZA and Fish and Wildlife that we were going to work on the species for a decade. And if we don't see, you know, um, recruitment and whether or not these toes are going to become, you know, evolutionary, are going to work out the resistance to this fungus, do we continue going or do we stop and go to another species that's, that's in, you know, more critically endangered? Right. So those, those are the kind of things. keep moving forward. Yeah. I'm with you. And, I mean, like a Mississippi gopher frog is a good, a good example that probably have, I don't know, 200 animals in the wild and it's found in there. Uh, a pond in a, you know, suburb, and it's like, Man. what do you do? So we're always questioning that. We're always talking about that. We're always, like, discussing on, you know, <clears throat> what do we save and what we don't save, and it's hard to say no. And, like, my boss, Rick Effner, told me this species he did a lot of work in Madagascar with freshwater fish. And, you know, he was, his theory was like, we're not going to lose the species on my watch. As long as I'm alive, I'm going to focus on the species. Um, you know, but like with that situation in Madagascar, you have a lot of introduced species that are wiping out, uh, you know, freshwater rainbow fish. And you'll get like a you know Asian snakehead population going into a, a lake. They're, everything is going to be gone. It's like Lake Titicaca frog that I work with in Peru. Um, they've introduced rainbow trout to every you know every lake I've been in has rainbow trout in the high Andes. And it's like, which is crazy. You know, I, how do you manage that? But the, but then do you, you know, when do you make the decision where, yeah, I'm going to walk away from this. I'm going to go work on another species. That's really a hard decision to make. Totally. Well, let's take one step back to talk about, um, stuff, you know, you and I getting together and that stuff, and then we'll jump into some other projects and things, and then um, maybe even give people a crash course on, um, keeping some frogs and stuff. I know that's not something that we really done on the podcast. So my recollection is that you and I first met at the uh, what the Colorado Dart Frog Club meeting at Brooke Bernson's house in 2000 or 2001. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, so yeah, right. Well, when when I was in Florida, we had 
Um, had two good friends of mine that were zookeepers also. We had our director of horticulture that had the, the first tropical, is in Hillsborough County, which is in Tampa, the first uh, fish farm for tropical fish. And now a majority of captive bred tropical fish come from the county of Hillsborough. And it was empty and it was overgrown with plants. And um, I started a company called Herp Concepts with a couple of buddies and we didn't know what we were doing. Um, we were zookeepers and we were um, trying to, you know, breed stuff at this, this facility in the swamps. And it was a lot of fun. Um, but when I decided to come back to Denver, um, and I met you, Rob, and we uh, really cleaned together. And uh, I was still trying to fulfill my herpetoculture career and, like, trying to do it on the side from the zoo, um, which can, can and can't be, you know, a, a professional conflict. Um, but you and I started High Plains Herpetoculture to where we were breeding animals. I remember our, the house in Brighton, we had a colubrid room, we had a python boa room, we had a frog room, uh, tons of animals. Man, you got and we were working. <laughs> we, we had, were remember working we had on, that giant mata mata in the bathtub? We had that, and then we had, we had the 15-foot Papuan olive python in the yeah. glass tank. I yeah, the first Oh, is that well? Yeah. Well, Papu, you know, I don't know if you've ever worked with Papuan olives. They're yeah. extremely strong. Yeah. And I remember feeding it, and it like constricted what I think was probably a rabbit. I mean, this thing was huge. And like we both, Rob and I both agreed that we wouldn't work this thing alone because if it if it got a hold of us, it would be, it could probably kill you. Yeah. And. Uh, it would it kill you, whether it could eat you. It probably couldn't eat you, but it, it could have eaten Butler for sure. It could have eaten the Great Dane. <laughs> yeah. oh, well, I remember feeding it, and it broke the front glass out of the exhibit, and we were like, what the hell are we going to do now? We got nothing else to put this thing in. <laughs> so I think, we, I think we bagged it up and then fixed the glass and then put it back in. But, uh, you know, Rob and I had, had a great time. We We... Um, I think our biggest success was probably um, rhino rat snakes or rinkophis. Um, we we did a lot of work with those. We uh, we I, we we switched focuses, but with the uh, opportunities with Bushmaster, we had a big connection with Asian rat snakes, and okay. so we were working with. I mean, we we did a lot of work with mandarin rat snakes, you know, and then and then we did we moved on to um, different scrub pythons. Um, it was a really good resource because Cameron's a really good friend. And Cameron at Bushmaster is, you know, as far as I'm concerned, he's a good friend of mine and he's 45 minutes away. But like working with zoos and Cameron, right? with zoos, you don't have to worry about any legal aspects. I mean, you know you're on the up and up with 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 working with Cameron and like as an AZA zoo for me to get um, to buy an animal from or to like if I wanted to donate an animal from my private collection at home, right? I would have to have a site inspection. 
um, an a AZA uh, questionnaire. And like zoos have gotten really strict with um, making sure who they're dealing with is not gonna like, I don't wanna go buy from this, this person and then have them get busted for smuggling something, you know, and then like that reflects, cause we're public institutions. Sure. Um, and we have to be very careful who we work with and it be, creates a lot of bureaucracy, a lot more work, uh, but I think it's good because we are, you know, doing our due diligence to make we're, make sure we're dealing with ethical, private, you know, um, breeders. And I, I'm all about the herpiculture. I'm all about everything I've learned, everything advances I think that are happening. I mean, zoos are doing a really good job, but the private sector, you know, is very much um, in comparison doing more um, in a lot of sense. Um, mainly because they have a little more freedom, um, but there's a lot of good biologists out there that are private herpetoculturists that, that, you know, like Rob's a good example of like, you know, I'll be talking to him about something that we're doing at the zoo and he'll say something and I was like, oh, I didn't think about that. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I still pride my, pride itself in that. But like when I was, um, when I first started the Denver Zoo, it really became, you know, in, the, in herpetoculture, it came more about color morphs, the ball python trend, um, corn snake, all that stuff. And like my old school PhD boss was like, that's not, what, that's not what we're about. We need to breed, we don't need to breed color morphs, we need to breed rare species. And he goes, and, you know, and he was very much against the, the uh, breeding of, you know, different color morphs and locality and stuff like that. And I was like, well, I go, we're doing the same thing. He's like, how do you, what do you mean? I'm like, well, if we breed a species here at the zoo, we're going to keep back the, the nice looking specimens <laughs> and send out the ones that aren't so nice. Right. And, and it's kind of like, we're not doing it as fast as herpetoculture is, but we are doing it. And, you know, to me, in, in my career, I don't know, I think you could look at, like, I don't know, 35 generations, you can probably consider that animal to be like leopard geckos, you know. You know, 35, 50 generations of captive bred animals, you're basically creating a domesticated animal. Right. Right. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's same thing we've done with dogs, same thing we've done with, with livestock. Um, but, um, I kind of got to the point, I mean, there were some circumstances that happened that kind of, um, Rob and I, Rob went to, went to law school and I, and I, um, I had just had my wife pass away and, and it was kind of a time for me to move on from that. Um, but I still miss it, but zookeeping all day long and then coming home and spending an hour and a half on animals and then spending your whole weekend shipping animals was, was, was a lot. <laughs> That's why Rob would come, come up to our house four times a week and take care of animals for me. And it was, um, but it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, we got to meet a lot of great people. Um, Rob's continued on with Highland Interpreter Culture. You know, I've moved up, up at the zoo, and uh, I don't know. It, it was just uh, a good time in my life. It was, um, 
I remember, just remember all the trips we took down to Daytona and, you know, went out and partied crazy and like hung out with it. It's like any other conferences. The show is the show, but when you get out and like start hanging out with people and talking to them, that's when the real business happens. Sure. <laughs> it's the same, same <laughs> as news. That's cool. So you guys were in the, you were in the, I guess, would you call it the heyday of herpticulture? I mean, the early 2000s were kind of like, that's when uh, things were really starting yeah, to, I mean, we, to go, right? Yeah, I mean, we saw some crazy stuff, and I know Keith, that went on the trip with us, and I'm half telling Tom, because actually Keith came out, Keith and I went out to the zoo before we'd gone on the trip. Um, right. Keith was at Daytona that same year when we had the uh, hurricane, and you and I were running around, uh, <laughs> running around the uh, motel and, you know, feeling the window as it was blowing in and all that stuff. He was down at the regular hotel, you know, he was fancy staying at the regular, Charlie. regular hotel. It was Hurricane Charlie, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That There's was so weird, just the whole bit. What was it? What well, were the people that, at the show? Yeah, yeah. There, there was definitely people, but the best thing about it was Florida Division of Wildlife was not there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow. That, that those were the days when you would get one table from some guy from South America with everything yeah. that wasn't legal. I was brought in, and he was sold out by, you know, the first two hours of the show. <laughs> oh, wow. I forget what the, there was. Yeah, I mean, and I say I forget as though it was one instance, but there it was sort of every year, yeah, there would be a guy who would come with, if whether it be frogs or some sort of lizard or something, and certainly there was sort of the Asian, you know, Asian vendors with Australian stuff, but this was, no, what you're talking about, there was something where it was like, wow, this is some, you know, South American frog, maybe it was Cayman Lizards before that became more of a thing, and that, that in that vein, right, where it was just like, what? I've, I've literally never seen this species ever offered for sale in the U.S., and this guy has 20 of them, and they, they look mostly terrible, but this is your one shot to get that species, really. Well, the funniest um, time we had for me was you and I were at the table and we were working with my friend um, Dustin, and he was from we I we both were from Colorado, and at that time you had to have your Florida permit on display on your table, and we didn't, and mm-hmm. the the officer came over and was like, "Where's your permit?" And I was like, "Well, it's actually my friend's table." And he's native of Florida, and he has a permit. <laughs> and he's he's over there on the other side of the show. So I went and grabbed him. And at that time, they were able – they had to go out to his vehicle and look up his permit. And um, Dustin, who's a good friend of both of ours, he, he goes, can you uh, help me with a joke? And um, the guy's like, yeah. He goes, when we go back to the table, tell them that everything's got to be got to go. Everything's confiscated. And Rob and I were like, what? And it was like, <laughs> everything's confiscated. He goes, you guys are not legal. He goes, I want all your animals. And I look over at Dustin, and, he, and he's smiling. Right. And I was like, you. And I was like, nice joke. Because we, right. we shipped all the stuff out from Colorado. Right. <laughs> oh, shit. And it was like rhinos and mandarins and parfaceous stuff and all. Yeah. No, 100%. I, I, I remember. Yeah. 
Yeah. Because cool. we had invested all the money to get the animals out there and hoping to do good at the show. And it was like the first day he was like, yeah, we're going to confiscate all your animals. <laughs> but that's his sense of humor. It was pretty funny <laughs> after. Well, I remember I met there, right? Right, yeah, not not as funny at the time, and then I remember one year that I had flown into Daytona, and so you guys drove over separately, and I got in there early, and I was like, I'd asked Wayne for the, Wayne Hill for the, you know, to have access to the table or whatever, and he acted like he didn't know, you know, had never heard Dustin Smith's name in his life, when in fact, you know, they're best buddies from the Turtle Survival Alliance and stuff and whatever, and Wayne just told me to go fuck myself. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I'm like, yeah. Oh. We, so we can curse on this 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 podcast. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, that was the heyday because when I when I first moved to Florida, um, it wasn't in D- Daytona. It was in Orlando. And it was probably the biggest show out there um, at the time. And then I moved to Daytona. But um, that's when I first got exposed to that because there's there was no reptile show well maybe one reptile show in nebraska when i lived there but um yeah it, it was a, a fun time it was it was uh you know there's a lot of cool species and and you know color morphs and and uh things were just getting started and i don't have a, i don't have a problem with with you know selectively breeding for color morphs because i feel that that's 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 basically domestication as far as I'm concerned. Right. Um, you know, but what I do at the zoo now is more, you know, like Titicaca frogs. Who has like Titicaca frogs? I mean, they're, uh, I started that project in 2007 um, with uh, the amphibian arc. And what we were seeing with like Titicaca frogs was First of all, a lot of the high Indian lakes have a, a genus Tomatobius, um, but these lakes are starting to get really polluted with like mining runoffs, and um, like with the Lake Titicaca frog, they're illegally harvesting them and bringing them to markets in Lima and Cusco and Arequipa, where they are. You go to this frog shop and they grind them up in blenders and drink them. Oh wow! And they do it for um, Peruvian Viagra, <laughs> yeah, mental clarity, fertility. You know, it's it's kind of like the Asian markets, which I'm sure are. I'm really interested in what's going on with the Asian markets right now with coronavirus and 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 uh, you know they put the ban on on any wild animals. Um, I don't understand how they're going to be able to um, enforce that. Enforce yeah. that. Right. Um, but um, with the Lake Titicaca frog, it was like, what's going on down there? And I, I met Dr. Roberta Alias, who, uh, you know, the amphibian art hooked me up with, and there was confiscations of like 4,000 frogs going into these markets, you know, like in one confiscation. And yeah. it's not really enforceable, um, but I don't, to me, being in this project long enough, I don't think that's a major threat to the species. The major threat to the species is um, mining, illegal mining, 
Um, we had, in 2015, I went down and there was like 10,000 frogs dead in this, it's called the Coata River. Uh-huh. Waterfowl were dead, livestock were dying, kids were getting really bad rashes um, from being in the water. And um, it was coming from dumping into the rivers. And I think what happened that for the incident I went to, they had tried to clean it and they tried to scrape, you know, the, the uh, um, area out of all this mining runoff and they exposed everything and it just wiped out everything. And um, we had a, a village elder, this woman, um, come to us. She actually took like 20 frogs and threw it on the, uh, the government's front door um, in Puno. And she said, look what's happening to our environment. Look at what's happening to our area. And she started getting death threats from, um, hmm. I, I, I would call them illegal mining cartel. And it was like, wow, that's pretty serious. And like I did a trip to a, a place called Tombopata, which is in the Amazon, um, close to Bolivia. It's Amazon Basin, but um, yeah, it's vast. I mean, there, there's no um, controlling that. I mean, there's, there's just stuff going on everywhere. But yeah, so I mean, it, there's a lot of challenges. And I think the biggest thing for me was, this is a funny story. So we have our education department that's, that's a part of this. And education to me, to locals is far more, anything I can do biologically to help with the situation, the education to the public is far more, um, it works a lot better. And I had our education department wanted me to bring down this huge frog suit. And it was like a cartoon, it was like giant (laughs) frog suit. And I had to carry it all the way down there and I was all pissed off about it. And I was like, all right, whatever. And then I started to see this, this frog take on this cartoonish like um, respect from the children. Uh-huh. And we called her Toma for Toma Tobias. And uh, um, she started, you know, we, we would take her to all these events. And I don't know if you've ever been in Peru, but they, they have holidays all the time. They're always celebrating. There's always parades going on. And all the kids would come to the, to the parade to see Toma. And the message that she was bringing was save your lake, save your environment, save the frog. And, um, you know, the kids started talking to their parents about it and saying, no, we need to save the frogs and we need to do this and that. And it was an incredible experience to see how much impact that stupid frog suit that I had to carry all the way down there had an effect on it. Oh, shit. Wow. Wow, Tom, the casual, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to Peru. Like, wow. <laughs> okay, buddy. <laughs> no, most people haven't been to Peru. Uh... <laughs> I don't know if you've I've ever been there seen like... an Owen Pelly Python, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't know if you have, but yeah, yeah. Well, so you, whatever happened, so I don't remember really the story with the. So you brought the um, frog totem, so to speak. Did you guys wrap that up? I don't. Or did it just get cut well, off? It's still going on. It's it's uh, 
We work really closely with a zoo in Lima called Huachipa Zoo. And um, we've kind of helped develop, um, I mean, zoos in, in, you know, I don't say third world countries, but developing countries don't have the full access of like, it's, it's, it's kind of like when you work in a zoo, are we entertaining people? Um, do we need to entertain people to get people to come through the front door to pay our salaries? Or, or is it called education? Um, are we educating people about animals? And um, it's really fun to watch the zoo in Peru um, develop a conservation program. And I mean, they're right now they're working with Lake Titicaca frogs. There's another frog species that we're working with up in a lake called Hunin, which is above 14,000 feet um, in uh, the high Andes. Um, and they developed a breeding program for that animal. Um, I went to, uh, uh, we have a research associate that's working in Peru at a place called Sabina Cocha, which is at like right about 16,000 feet. And I haven't been up wow. there. I haven't done, I haven't done that. Um, but they're working closely with, uh, this cat It's called the Andean mountain cat, which is, you never see them. And we put up a bunch of um, camera traps up there and we know they exist up there. Um, but there's a frog species, there's a Telmatobius in that lake. Um, but I'll tell you what, when you work up in the high Andes, it's like um, you got a week to two weeks where you're like, I've had a headache. So then even coming from Colorado at, um, yeah. you know, 5,000, 6,000 feet, it's like, I got to get down. I have to get out of this elevation because I'm, I can't breathe at night. Um, it's tough, it's tough work. Right. Um, but the, uh, the Sabina Cocha project, it's more of an archeological project, but there's, they're seeing a Telmatobi species in the lake. Um, they've documented like all these species that live up there that coexist with with the high elevation, it's, it's pretty cool, pretty cool stuff. Wow. That's awesome. And is that any more protect, I mean, just being so remote and difficult, is that stuff well, any more protected by that? He, um, uh, Preston Sowell is his name. Um, he's from Boulder. Um, he's led this, this, this trip up there, but uh, these trips um, up there, but it's it's mining. It's like trying to fight, not fight mining. Even up like, there. Yeah. Right. And there's fight the consequences you know, associated with it. Yeah, and it, it's uh, documenting certain things, certain things that you find that the government would be like, yeah, this is. The, I think with Sabina Kocha, it came down to. This is a historical archaeological site for Inca or even pre-Inca, and right. that's that's basically the angle where the government will get in and be like, okay, yeah, this is historical to our people, to our native people, and we need to protect this. Gotcha. Right. But anyway, so yeah, through. I guess my career, I've been intermixed with herpetoculture and um, 
you know, zoo herpetology, and it's it's. Uh, I see both sides of it. I I, uh, I love going to reptile shows. I still, when I was younger, like I'd go to a reptile show and I'd like get anxiety before I'd walk in because I was getting ex exposed to, you know, all these private breeders that have all these real cool animals. And then I went to um, the last show here in Denver and I, <laughs> I had the same feeling. I was like, oh, this is going to be cool. We're going to see all kinds of cool stuff. <laughs> and uh, it's, still, it's still a lot of fun. And and I respect you know the private sector and and I think there's a lot of collaborations that can happen between zoos and the private sector. I think TSA is a really good example of where you know we've worked really good with trying to help. You know that's a whole nother crisis is the Asian turtle crisis, but we've really worked together with. I mean zoos can't do it alone. And, right. you know, the book that really influenced me was The Invisible Ark from the Barkers. Yes. Great. From Dave and Tracy. Yeah. And, it's, and to me, it's like we keep reconfiguring in zoos how, what we can to, do to make the most impact. And um, I think these collaborations with the private sector are, are, going to be the answer and, it, and a good example is uh um the frogs that we got from uh ecuador with uh it's a company called vacari uh -huh. um yeah that they yeah, breed... so can you you should explain that tom I, this audience probably won't have a ton of exposure and i know eric won't have a ton of exposure but it's it's this awesome concept of we're talking about frogs that were unavailable even five years ago, and those that in the tiniest numbers, I mean, to me, it's, it has a ton of crossover to our Australia stuff, right, with exactly what we were talking about before we called Tom, that, like, in terms of smuggled animals, that we're talking about, like, Lamani, right? I think that didn't they just offer some, or they're going to start to offer some or whatever? This is a frog that, like, maybe you would have seen in the 80s that were 100% guaranteed smuggled. No, and even then, like, none of them were surviving. There are tiny numbers. And now they'll be legally available with funds going back to the country that they came from. It's like the perfect example of getting conservation funds associated with commercialization while simultaneously killing any impulse to smuggle animals. It's like the perfect example of this actually working. Well, the big questions that arise, especially coming from a zoo, is like, so we're gonna we're gonna support this effort, and I'm calling it biocommercialism. I don't know if that's the right term for it, uh -huh. but it's happening in Colombia. It's ha happening in Ecuador. It's happening in uh, Costa Rica, um, to where you know some of these companies are going in and getting specimens and, and breeding them and then selling them. And even the Kaiser I spot, uh, spotted the um, the uh, newt from Iran um, that um, the rigorous the Kaiser I. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's it's in. I mean, conservation works in mysterious ways, and you can look at like um, what's it called, Ducks Unlimited. Ducks Unlimited is a hunting organization 
that supports conservation for waterfowl. And they have done so much. And you look at the Wild Turkey Foundation, you look at the Elk, the Trout Foundation, the Elk Foundation. Um, I think, you know, Cousins that's forever, a right? Yeah, and that's a bit, well, you can't really say that because that's an introduced species from China, but I love pheasants so because I grew up in Nebraska. <laughs> but, um, like I always said, I mean, conservation works in mysterious ways. And um, the one thing I really do respect about, you know, the poison dart frog people is they really respect localities um, and, and, you know, not mixing localities of species and, you know, not making, um, I, I'm not, that, is, hybridizing, you know, is not that big a deal to me because you're developing kind of a domesticated animal, but right. that's not the animal you're going to put back in the wild. Right. Um, but, yeah, I mean. But it um, really, so it, it puts, it's an actual example. I don't know that I, it had really crossed my mind as being so perfect a corollary. Eric, to what you talk about with the Australia, if Australia opened up, it's really what Tom's highlighting in terms of like dirt frog keepers valuing that locality and that specificity. It's whenever you say, how much would I pay for a genuine locality, you know, X carpet python direct from Australia, verifiable with that information, you know, this sort of thing, would I pay a premium for that? And the answer actually is borne out in the dark frog community as a, a thousand percent yes. I mean, a, a huge premium on stuff to to be able to nail it down to that to that lineage, and then having people really do great stuff with it from there, so it uh -huh. becomes totally established instead of like a single pair of smuggled animals with a totally questionable backstory. I mean, we actually see it playing out in these frogs, and it a hundred percent. It's not. There's always some question, right, of if, it, if this was legit, would people care as much as they do when it's, you know, sort of gives the air of being illicit? And the frog stuff is an illustration that actually they will be super invested and will pay a premium and then carry it forward. It's not even, uh, I think that was an initial question, right, Dom, is, well, they'll bring in these frogs, but they'll only do it for X period of time, and will people kind of carry those things forward or will they only last so long as there are new imports well, you, coming from You might see it come full, full circle. You might come see it full circle to where, um, yeah, let's, let's, you know, like back in the 70s when they were bringing in boa constrictors, it was a boa constrictor. You know, everything from taxonomy that I learned when I started has pretty much changed. I have to go look up Latin names now to be like, <laughs> okay, what, what change? You know, sure. you know, it's not a Dendrobates anymore, or it's not a Morelia anymore, or it's not, yeah. you know, it's, you know, it's different now. Um, and everybody bred like boa constrictors is a good example, is everybody bred boa constrictors with boa constrictors, but nobody knew what locality they were coming from. Right. If you're developing a assurance population to release, potentially release, like, sorry, sorry, I live off Colfax. <laughs> um, um, I don't know if you know Colfax, but it's a busy part of the city. Um, what was I saying? Um, 
like if you do a assurance population to release back in the wild, you need specific locality, um, GPS locality on where the, where the animals were collected. And the population, like if you do reproduce and put it back in the wild, they need to go back to exactly where the, they're called founders. Right. Or potential founders. You collect a population, you have founders, you reproduce them, and then those go back to exactly where they're from. Otherwise, you would be, you can't go to PetSmart and buy a green iguana and start a green iguana breeding project because right. you have no idea where those animals are from. Sure. Um, and like even when we did the boreal toads, um, even though they were isolated from the rest of the, because I don't want to bring in oriole toads and put them in my tropical discovery exhibit and have them be exposed to Africa, Asia, South America, you know, animals that are right next to them. So you need, because there's potential pathogens that, I mean, it's happened. It's happened where we've reintroduced the fungus chytrid back into the wild, not knowing we were doing it. I mean, through the 80s and 90s, we researchers were probably spreading this fungus um, and not knowing it because they weren't aware of it. Right. Um, but like through like Maybe. 1986 is when it was called. It was called the golden toad. It's not the golden frog. Uh, Bufo perennialis, which is now Anaraxis perennialis, but it doesn't exist anymore. Um, that was the first time when we started seeing a species go extinct. And we could have got that animal in captivity. Um, we could have brought it into like human care is what we call it now. Um, I have to say that being from the zoo. Um, we could have probably <laughs> saved that animal and had it, had it in the zoological collections. And I'm curious to where that species might still exist in probably European collections. Secretly, we don't right. know. Right. Um, but um, so you, you get your animals in, you call them potential founders. If they reproduce, then they're going to be proven founders that you're going to be putting back into the wild. Um, but I mean, and that's, that's kind of where zoos are going um, as far as like internal collection planning and high priority species and um, it's all about space. It's all about how much space you have. And when you're talking about zoos, you're talking about, um, you know, 5,000-pound rhinos, 12,000-pound Asian elephants, you know, all these programs. It's like how much space do we have to, um, you know, what are, we are constantly talking amongst, our, amongst ourselves is like, are we really doing you know, the right thing right now with with the way zoos have evolved. And I mean, like right now, I got nine, uh, potentially nine Komodo dragons, two of which are still in eggs. But um, I bred, um, we had a parthenogenic breeding with, we had a pair of recommended breeders um, and we put them together and the male was a dud and the female was attacking the male and usually that's the other way. Basically with Komodo dragons is, is you wait and you watch the female and you know, my keeper staff will look at the female and be like, I think she's ovulating because she's digging a lot and her belly's swollen 
and her her muscle tissue or muscle mass within her tail and the back legs are like starting to thin. And then you'll and right. being in the having the same facility with the male in it, the male will start you'll see it it will call it tail drags. And you'll see the tail marks throughout the exhibit. And what we do is like we'll go, okay, I think she's ovulating. Let's put her with the male. Um, if he comes at her with an open mouth, she's not ready to breed. Or she, in this situation, she went after the male. And either they copulate or they kill each other. And it's a lot of zoos have trouble with that. Right. It was like it's like Rob, our our Australian olive python. It's like we paired mm-hmm. him up, and I came in, and the female had the male coiled up and was starting to eat him. Right. And we saved him. I mean, I got in there before she killed him, but that's the type of situation you're dealing with. Um, so they didn't breed. Our male died at 16 years old, which is a younger male. Not younger, but becoming geriatric male. Um, our oldest male died at like 22 years old. Um, but uh, so. Which was the one that ate the really giant rock? That was his dad. He ate a full okay. pound of rock. And that's another story. I'll tell that story too. So the keeper comes in and he looks on the ground and he goes, There was a rock right there. <laughs> and. The rock was gone, and um, they were like, I think Caster ate that rock. And we were like, why would he eat that rock? So we x-rayed him, and sure enough, he had a four-pound rock in his gut. Holy shit. And we had to sedate him, knock him down, and we put a PVC pipe in his mouth. And, and one of my keepers that's got long, skinny arms basically reached into his stomach and pulled the rock out. Oh God! And I have it. I have it. I have it sitting on my desk right now. Um, you know, reptile, reptile brain. Right. I did an MRI on uh, Komodo a couple months ago, and its brain was smaller than its eyeball. Oh wow! And it's like so. I don't know. Did it smell like a rodent? Was it hungry? Did we just feed it? And it decided that, that rock was food. But anyway, we saved him, and he did fine. Um, but um, so this dragon, uh, the male died at 16 years old, which is young. I mean, they live up in their 20s, and we don't we don't know why. We don't know what happened. We went through, and he had gout throughout its entire body. It had gout in its eyeballs. It it had went. We thought it had cataracts. He went blind. Um, we were okay with it because he was navigating with his tongue, the exhibit. And, you know, you, you just, when you get into geriatric reptiles, you, you, you don't know pain, you know, right. um, you don't know right. if they're feeling. They don't, they don't show or express that very well. Well, that, that's kind of another story too, because his dad, we had him on tramadol and all these kind of pain medications and he was in his twenties and, um, he was spending a lot of time in his pond, and he was actually getting algae growth on his back from the pond. And we're like, this is no, not a good quality of life for this animal. Um, so we brought in a canine therapist, which I thought was crazy. I was like, this isn't going to work. 
and she came in and started doing um, massaging her, his spine, and we took him off all of his drugs, and he was feeling better, and we probably put like five years onto his life. Because um, like we'll do, when, when an animal gets to a point where, and it's not, it's not necessarily we think the animal's dying, but like if we have an animal that has an issue, we'll put them on a quality of life assessment, and we have parameters that we check on them to make sure that he's still having a good quality of life. And it kind of comes down to the point when you're dealing with geriatric animals that, um, yeah, he, he's having a good day today, right. but the whole week was not good. And so we make a decision that we're going to potentially euthanize this animal if it gets that bad, but then he has a good day, and then we change our mind. I was like, no, we can't do that. We can't. We got to be right by the animal. We have to really assess that. But anyway, so this we put in. We pair these these two dragons up, and the female jumps on the top and starts biting them on the neck. And I was like, are we sure that female is a female? I was like, did we sex this animal wrong? Because that's some serious dominant behavior. And um, the male ended up dying. Which is the same and, thing we see in small vertebrates. They just jumbo size, man. You know, like they're they're the same. They're just one is up, what fifteen hundred times bigger. Yeah, yeah. Much, right. But then the female, being a recommended breeder, lays twenty-two fertile eggs without copulating with a male. So it's a partho right. parthogenic breeding. And, um, you know, I was like, all right, well, that happened. Um, how, how is that going to affect our SSP program? How is it going to affect the gen genetics of that animal? You know, I mean, potentially, like, you get in turtles that are wild caught that could be um, retaining sperm from right. another specimen. And we're, we're, like, trying to pair them up and genetically keeps them viable, and then we're realizing that that turtle potentially bred with a male in the wild a year ago. Right. Right. So it's complicated. And there does seem to be heredity to having partho babies, particularly, I mean, that's a species where we're seeing it a lot, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, for me to explain parthenogenesis, I'd probably have to go look at Wikipedia and explain it to you. Um, but I mean, this population. <laughs> so there's actually. That. Right. It, it's that's totally what they do. But I was going to say, there's a, a fan of the show who's a. Uh, what's Dr. B's official title, Eric? Yeah, I guess he's the phylogeneticist, if nothing else. And, yeah. But, but so he does a ton of, has done in the past a ton of work with parthenogenesis. So actually, we have a fan of the show who's really qualified, better qualified than any of the three of us to speak on this. But I just know that uh, with Komodos especially, it does seem like a very common thing. Well, it's like anything. It's like I'm a biologist, I'm a zoologist, but if i got to explain parthenogenesis, I'm not the right, I'm the right person to explain that. And if you want me to explain why people think Komodo dragons are venomous, I got to go Wikipedia that too. 
right? Oh, my goodness. Well, do you want to talk about the Panama stuff at all? I mean, in terms of field herping, I know Eric and I are always excited to heal, uh, to hear field herping stories and stuff. And Sure. Uh, despite what you implied earlier, we haven't all been to Panama or Peru. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> I think anything good, man. Well, I've been, I've been in probably six or seven different rainforests, um, throughout central and South America okay, and Seattle, which is a temperate rainforest looking for, uh, um, salamanders up there. The, Probably the highlight of my career was Panama, um, the Central American Cloud Force and Costa Rica. Um, you know, I, I compare it to like the Amazon, um, Iquitos and Tambopata, where uh, the Amazon to me is like, you'll die, you may die in this, you, just from exposure in this area. It's hot, it's, you're getting swamped by mosquitoes. Oh, you know, you, you know, like, the biggest thing um, I found, well, the funny thing was last year, this isn't herb related, but um, I went to uh, Peru to do work with the giant Hunin frog, and I got asked to go to a, uh, a monkey reserve um, in Iquitos. And I was with our, our field biologist down there, our field manager, and he's a veterinarian that works at a, a university in uh, at Lima. And um, we go to this island and there's like, we, we knocked down, he goes, we're taking a veterinary crew down there to, um, their veterinary students to knock down monkeys and do physical exams on them. And I was like, I'm in, I'm totally in. Um, <laughs> that sounds awesome. So we went down there and the first thing I do is when I get off the boat, I have a, big bully monkey jump on my head and like put his mouth on my face and I'm like I'm going to get a disease this is not a good idea um, <laughs> and then they're like you can't wear you can't you can't use insect repellent or DEET I was like are you kidding me they're like no it makes the monkey sick and we went out um, photographing frogs at night and um I was like inhaling mosquitoes. It was so bad. So the Amazon's awesome, but it, it's treacherous. I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, mosquitoes, man. That's all right. But like in Panama and in, in uh, Costa Rica, it's cloud force and it's cool and it's uh, not as hot, but the biodiversity, it's like a biological hot zone for, a lot of different, a lot of different um, taxa, but mainly for frogs. And it's like, um, when I was in Costa Rica, I went out for two nights and caught 27 different species of frogs and photographed them. Um, the bio, you know, you really have to enjoy the biodiversity of it, but it was, uh, you know, Central Central America to me is, is, is my, one of my big loves. That's, that's, those, that's the places where I've had a lot of good memories. Um, but when we were working with uh, the Panamanian golden frog, it was about 2005. Um, that's when the fungus swept through, and basically frogs were dying, falling out of trees, and and um, mm. it was sad. 
it was sad to see it, but it was also like we were on one river and we're like, what, do, what should we do? And I was like, we, we actually got a permit for Project Golden Frog and we got, um, we're able to bring in 40 specimens from three different populations. Um, and we still have them in North American zoos that we're reproducing. We are, we are getting to the point of releasing them back into the wild. But um, the fungus is, is an issue because um, you're going to release these frogs back. When you bring them into captivity and you bring them into an uh, assurance population, you know, if you treat them for parasites, treat them for the fungus, and then you go and release their offspring back in the wild, you're potentially creating a totally naive animal that's right. going to get exposed to all that stuff and it's just going to wipe, it's not going to survive. So that right. that's a big question on, um, and if you talk to my best at the zoo, it's like, so we're going to bring in frogs that are positive for chytrid. Our vets would be like, no, we're not. You know, so there's a question on, <laughs> on sure. you know, what do you do? And I, I believe, you know, with any tax or reptile, amphibian, whatever, parasites are natural. And, yeah. and they have them and they've coexisted with these parasites. And the pathogen or the parasite and the, the species adapt together. And what we're yeah. seeing with the global amphibian crisis is this fungus, put, you know, the theory is that it came from Africa and it's been introduced all over the world. Um, and like, if you look at a native bullfrog, um, it coexists with this fungus fine. And what happened in right. the 60s where they were bringing in African clawed frogs um, right, it's the xenopost for, for pregnancy test, right? Exactly. And yeah. you, you would like do a fertility test uh, to see if you're pregnant, yeah. and they would spawn um, from yeah. female urine, I guess. And uh, so technology got better, and then all these frogs were really <laughs> You need to test progesterone with frogs, yeah. <laughs> well, and like God. if you're if you're a, a you know, school teacher, you could get bullfrogs, you know, order them on the internet, and have tadpoles and let them morph out and do a biological like teaching with your with your students. But then what do they do right. with them when they're done? They go. They toss them outside once they're a frog. Yeah. And now you got a now you got a frog that coexists with this fungus and. Eat. I mean, bullfrogs will eat anything. You know, mouth. Yeah. yeah. And now you guys, southeastern bullfrogs all over the world that are spreading this fungus, and not to mention that they're a, a food item. You know, they're, they're people are farming right. them for frog-like food. Right. But so yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> Yeah. Right on. Can you, so if you wouldn't mind, I know this is going to seem way over general and stuff, but I do think it actually would have a ton of value. You walk through what it entails either to keep frogs at home or how how you would get started doing that. I know you had, had seen you do it for 
you know, plenty long and helped you out with that. And then you came over to help me do some and, and all. And so it's definitely doable. And I'm sure you have some cool. advice for folks trying to keep their frogs at home, but I don't know how practical yeah, I, it is to talk about. <laughs> I think it's a lot of work. I think the biggest drawback to, um, you know, breeding dart frogs is, or any insectivore is food culture. Um, you have right. to stay on top of making fruit flies. Um, it's not something where you can take a frozen mouse and thaw it out and feed your snake. It's being on top of, um, you know, when I was doing, when I was at my highest with poison dart frogs, privately, it was um, trying to keep crickets alive, trying to keep them nutritionally valuable, um, trying to do, you know, multi, I mean, I did cockroaches, I did dubia, I did all kinds of, um, you know, insects. So to be a good amphibian keeper, you need to know your insects and culturing and stay on top of it because if you slack at it, you're going to have, you're going to get to a point where like, oh, crap, I don't have any food to feed my animals. I, I'm going to have to order them. Um, or you're going right, to always. It, yeah, it seemed like either I had too much or not enough. <laughs> it was never perfect, yeah. you know. I mean, we have a pretty good routine down at the zoo that we, we you know, can manage that. And it's, it's on a routine to where the keepers, like, Friday is making, you know, fruit fly cultures or or uh, maintaining the dubia roaches. And, by the way, dubia roaches, you know, like, everything loves, like, if you don't have an insectivore that can't eat, you'll probably be able to get it to eat by feeding it a cockroach. And from being, you know, a lot of work in the tr in the tropics, there's a lot of species of cockroaches out there. But then you also have the concern that, um, like, my keepers are like, we need to order in dubia roaches. And I was like, if I see a dubia roach outside of an enclosure and in my rainforest, we're going to have to stop because uh -huh. it's going to infest the entire building. Because yeah. it's a rainforest. I mean, I've found hissing cockroaches in my building. Not to mention yeah. um, our pyramid. I've seen Cuban tree frogs. I've seen. I just saw a, uh, a Cuban anole, you know, running around. Those are coming in <laughs> on plants and stuff. But um, right. it's it's more about to be a good amphibian person. I think you need, need to know your plants. You need to know your your food items, and you know every. You get new different potential food items every couple of years that people are culturing. Um, but like I said, I mean, I'm not totally, I'm not, I'm not against cleaning your animals with, you know, for parasites, like trying to clean them through everything. But I think parasites are natural and there's different parasites that will recycle in a, a natural vivarium that you can't control. And like what we do at the zoo is like, we'll, we'll do routine fecals and, we, we will get concerned when we see high loads of different kind of parasites right. and we'll treat them, but, but it's more um, like the coexistence with parasites and trying to, um, even now, like with chytrid, like um, I had a pair of uh, green and bronze erratas from Costa Rica uh -huh. that I've had for a decade. And it was kind of embarrassing, but I donated some to the zoo, and they came out positive for chytrid. 
And, you know, that's like, oh, my God, what did I just do? But those, that species lived, I mean, they're eight years old and reproducing every other week. Or every right. Third. Clearly they're living with, so it's, it's a question of validity of tests versus things that have, it just raises questions, right, about whether things are actually living with this, the lethality versus surviving, what we've been talking about, coexisting, right, or adaptation, mm -hmm. even to this stuff. Well, I mean, it's I'll put it, not to get it. No, you go. Well, we had um, a Nepal viper die at the zoo. Younger animal, it wasn't very old. Um, send it in. We send all our stuff to CSU for necropsies and then histopathology, and it came back positive for snake mites. And I was like, "What?" And the pathologists are very good. And um, yeah. I was like, "No, we don't have snake mites um, in our collection." And I mean, even the pathologist keyed it out to the species of mite. And it was like, so we started tubing up all these venomous snakes. We tubed up probably 25 mm -hmm. venomous snakes and soaked them in water to see if we had mites. Right. And I was like, and I was trying to explain to my best. I was like, that's not how a mite infestation happens. I was like, if you have mites in your collection, if you pick up the animal, you're going to have them on your hands. If you soak the animal, you're going to see it in the water. And we still, till this day, we're still trying to figure out because we went through 25 snakes and didn't find anything. And it was, it was yeah. kind of like, who, you know, because if, you know, you and I, Rob, know with all the stuff that we were working with Cameron that was wild caught, it's like, you know you have mites. Sure. It, it's not sure. a question. You, you, you know you have them. Um, yeah. And certain things like that pop up and, you know, sometimes like the veterinary staff gets tunnel vision on it, and it's like, that's what we have. We have to fix this problem. And it's like, are we sure that they didn't, you know, diagnose us wrong? Um, and after yeah. tubing a, a couple, you know, five foot fertile ants, I was like, this is <laughs> too much. Enough. That's, yeah. That's, Enough. Yeah. It's too much. And the vet We're not agreed. seeing problems with this. Yeah. We're move on and reassess down the road. But like I was yeah. saying with the uh, green and black poison arrow frogs, I was like, those frogs have chytrid, so I can pretty much consider my entire collection of chytrid. Um, and it made me feel really uncomfortable, like like giving anybody well, you know animals from my collection and stuff. And I went through, got at it the out. Same time. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, at the same time, does that just mean that, like, all of our captive frogs do, and it's just a question of whether or not they can tolerate it? You know, like, we're working yeah. with lineages that can tolerate it. In fact, it, it's not a question. We try, and our sort of perception is to try and view things as saying things are clean versus dirty, right? But in, in reality, it's a question of there's exposure all over to everything, and it's really a question of, tolerances and whether you have a lineage that tolerates it, which those are just tolerate it a hundred percent, you know, and they the do fine for other people. The thing with like poison dart frogs, if you keep them at, 
upper 70s to 80s, they're not going to show signs of tittered. But if they, right. if you know, if they cool down, something happens, they become immunocompromised to it. They're gonna, it's going to come out and it's probably going to kill them. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, the same, overheated is the same, right? Well, when, when you keep Kitchard is is more found in um, like cooler, like cloud forest animals. Um, when you get into the lowlands of Central America, and it, it might have changed, it might have advanced from now, but when you keep keep them warmer, um, they will be able to fight off the chytrid or coexist with it. What we're also seeing okay. is called B-cell, which is another form of chytrid that's come from Asia, from like Asian aquatic newts and salamanders that right. have been imported to Europe. And you're seeing um, fire salamander populations that are getting wiped out from B cell. But Asian salamanders or caudates have been evolving with this for millions of years. So they can coexist with right. it. So um, the big, the hot topic, you know, it still is a hot topic, was they're going to put a moratorium on any Asian salamanders coming into the United States because we don't want it to get into our native salamander population, especially the Appalachians and Eastern United States that has the, sure. it's a, another right. biological hot zone for caudates. Um, let's just stop it. Let's make a, let's make a law and stop it. But. Right. So that, that was timed more or less simultaneous with the whole, um, you know, large snake ban, right? But so that is not the law. As of right now, in terms yeah, of shipping salamander, I don't think so, right? But I remember it come it being at some stage of the process, right? Around that same 2010, 2008 to 2012 range. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but you know, you start to think about it. It's like, what else are we bringing in from Asia? Are we bringing in plants? Right. Are we bringing in river rocks? Are we bringing in <laughs> whatever? Right. You know, and, and I think from the, the years and years and years that we've been importing Asian salamanders, this would have happened, yeah. you know, before. Sure. It's, and, and, you know, with, with zoos, it comes down to um, – more or less, how are you going to affect our programs for moving animals? You know, are, are, are zoos going to be exempt by doing, you know, proper due diligence to, to you know, like when we did boreal toad release back in the wild, we had to um, sacrifice. We didn't have to. We actually already did uh, by mistake. Uh, but test. <laughs> <laughs> like sixty, you know, sixty tadpoles before right. we could put. You know, it's like it comes down to a percentage evaluation of like, okay, we're we're this amount positive that these animals are not positive for kitchen, so we can release them back into the wild. Um, right. You know, with with boreal toads, we're like, um, well, with anything, we're like crayfish. Or is there kitchen on crayfish? Anything that's a food item that you're you're using to go fishing, 
with. You know, yeah. tiger salamanders yeah. in Colorado or even throughout the United States are intermixed because they're they're bait food. And right. you know, are they are they spreading kitchen too? Um, so it's it's pretty complicated. But I think the the best thing you can do is have a protocol, at least for zoos and, and releasing animals back in the wild, is have a protocol to do your due diligence that you're not um, spreading a disease. But the bee sow, um, which is the Asian salamander thing, I mean, it's wiped out populations of of uh, fire sandwich throughout, you know, all of Europe. Right. So... Simultaneously, as you point out, though, it's like if, say, that if that ban were effectuated, right, it would just kill the salamander hobby, and then there are species of salamander, Neurergus strouchi, right, or whatever, that it's like, well, zoos aren't working with those. Those would, were, would, were and would be in the U.S., right? But if that law is effectuated, then people stop working with them. You have species like that that then there's not even a source, right, to, okay, well, we'll run them through quarantine and check them and all that. They're just not available. And it's just like, well, we just don't even have them. Um, absent well, starting a project with Iran, you're not going to get those salamanders, and that's probably unlikely. Well, it's, it's conflicting because in one sense you're wanting to propagate this animal to get it into captive collections, but in the same right, I don't want to see our eastern salamanders. Sure. But, you know, once it becomes law, it becomes law. And it's really hard to reverse reverse that. Oh, for sure. Very cool. What else you got? (laughs) (laughs) Right? So that's the advice. If people, if you're going to work with frogs in captivity, you need to... uh, uh, focus on setting up good environments and focus on your feeders, right? Pay attention to your plants and the environment that you're well, making. And the, the best thing I've, I've seen from my career is to whatever it is, whatever it's snake, um, bearded dragon, set your setups to be um, automated if you can to the point of where um, it's like I see with my zookeepers. If, if there's an exhibit that's a pain in the ass to get into, to clean right. or do anything, that's when stuff starts to get neglected. Right. Um, you know, and, and um, you know, with amphibians, you set them up on a rain chamber, you set them up on a missing system, and basically all you got to do is culture food and feed them. Um, but if anything, it's like, you know, everybody, you know, you know, private herpetologists or whatever have their collection. They have it in the room. They can shut the door to the room and they don't have to look at it. And you get into burnout stage and you're like, like I can neglect that room now. But if I have, like I've, I've learned. If it's out in the living room. Right? Yeah. Pri- yeah. Privately it's like, um, I have a beta tank in my living room with Solowessi, um, rabbit snails in them <laughs> and it's like three gallons and like that's all I yeah. have right now um, just because I've, I've kind of gotten over my my huge collection that I used to have 
but like every day I'm looking at this thing and checking on everybody and every, and I'm making sure and I got those beta trained to come over and feed from one corner. But if you get it, if you get, don't get into the hoarding mentality to where it gets overwhelming, you know, have it. I think you said this to me, Rob, last week at the show was, I, I don't want to, this was pretty important when you said this to me, it was like, I don't want to have to tell you that you should buy the snake. I want you to want to buy the snake. Um, I rescued, uh, it's kind of a good story, this happened yesterday. Um, so I don't have any animals home, but I had, uh, I did rescue a, a boa constrictor um, that was going to be euthanized by one of the um, uh, rescues here in town. And I was like, oh God, I gotta go get this. I, and it was like a Mexican boa, so it was like meaner than hell. Um, <laughs> but it was a baby. Yeah. No big deal, uh-huh. and it was like had two sheds on it, and it was nasty, and it was not not in a good condition. I rehabbed it back to being in a good condition, got its all the shed off of it, and Mexican boas are not the prettiest boas of all of them. Mm-hmm. And I had an inter- <laughs> intern at the zoo, and he's like, "I love boa constrictors," and I was like, "You want one?" He's like, how much, how much, how much you know, sell it for? I was like, $500. And he looked at me like, I can't afford that. And I was like, I'm kidding, dude, just come over and get it. Um, <laughs> and I, I picked it up and I showed it to him and he was like, this thing is beautiful. I was like, really? Yeah. It's a Mexican <laughs> bullet. It's got no red on it. It's, and he goes, no, it's like, it looks like chocolate. Like I go look at his tail and he goes, this thing is gorgeous. And I gave it to him in a bag and he walked out into his car and I was looking out the window and he took it out in the car and he was just staring at it. And I was like, man, that made me feel really good because he really appreciates, he's young, you know, and he's inspired and he's like, um, it was just a really good feeling because I had rehabbed that animal that was going to be euthanized and, you know, coming from me that's like a curator over a huge collection at the zoo that that was a really special time to really see um his appreciation of the animal and and that's where i think you know don't get into the hoarding point where you just need you need to have this you need to have that but really appreciate the animals you have set them up the way they need to be set up and um don't overwhelm yourself because it will happen it's happened to me throughout my career yeah, totally. Too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, well, and part of it, right, is we, and we've totally seen this, and I know Eric, you've seen it as well, where it's like, well, this is the only, op- as we talked about, oh, well, this today at Daytona is the only day these frogs, you will ever have access to this species, right? Literally, this is it. This is the moment. And we, we have that concern of like, well, this literally might never happen again, whether it's a bloodline or a species or whatever it is. And so it's easy to envision ourselves as needing to maintain that. And, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm totally there with you, Tom, that it's like nowadays you just need to do right by what you have and that do the best that you can with what you have. And that's, that's all you can do. Right. Well, it even comes down to are you into the species for the species or are you in – are you very, is your thing to propagate? Are you looking at yeah. producing? 
you know, and that I've been in that part of my life where I'm like, I'm cranking these out. I'm going to produce these and I'm going to make money and I'm going to um, be the expert on the species. And that's cool too, but, but there, there's burnout that can happen with that, you know? For sure. Well, think, I'll, oh, I'll leave you with this, this yeah. example. Um, so working in Peru with Lake Titicaca frog, we got confiscated frogs and we brought them into the university and the zoo and we propagated them there. These are all confiscated animals. So we don't know localities or where they're from. So they're not, they're not going to be like an assurance population. They're only going to be for purely, uh, ambassador species to, to educate people about the Lake Titicaca frog and it's, you know, critically endangered species and the plight of the frog. So um, we had a couple clutches in, in Peru and I was like, can I, can I get these to the United States to show our story? Because I think what zoos need to do a better job of explaining where we are with, um, we, we do, I mean, Denver Zoo has more, has, you know, employees throughout the world. We have employees in, in uh, Botswana, we have employees in uh, uh, Vietnam, we have employees in uh, Mongolia, Peru, and we do work in the Western United States. But uh, um, I was like, this would be a huge thing for me to bring these to the United States because they haven't been in the United States since the 70s. And Bronx Zoo were the last ones to have them. And they got eggs out of them, but they never, they weren't fertile. So I, it, it was probably the longest transaction in the Denver Zoo for me to get these. <laughs> and it had to be second, second generation um, frogs by the government of Peru. And we had to do an animal exchange with them. We sent down some chondro pythons because they don't have a lot of Asian uh, pythons in their collections because uh, the two big zoos in, in Lima, 90% of their collection comes from confiscated animals that are, you know, in the wildlife trade. Right. Um, so right. it was a big deal. Um, got them here um, in 2015, 2016, we bred them. And I looked at the egg mass. I was like, well, the eggs look good. I go, there's probably a hundred, maybe 50 to a hundred eggs in there. And we didn't know what we were doing. Uh, we were just trying to, you know, experiment. And within two days I had 500 tadpoles and I was like, holy crap, what am I going to do with all these frogs? So I'm expecting them to be cannibalistic and potentially eat each other or just, you know, I mean, I've raised a lot of species of frogs, but it's been like, you know, 20%, you know, of success with a lot of them and it can be very difficult, but this was not difficult. As long as we had all the parameters set up for them, we had um, about 500 frogs. And I had frogs everywhere. And Lake Titicaca frogs have to be on a chiller. And we had to have them on these big systems. And for the last three years, I've been sending out Lake Titicaca frogs to everyone. Um, all, you know, like probably 15 zoos in the United States. I sent 150 of them to Europe. But it was like, um, I don't know why point was with that, but it was like, uh, it wasn't that hard. And it was because we set them up correctly. 
Mm-hmm. But, you know, I had high densities of frogs and tadpoles, and, you know, it's like you're concerned with stunning their growth. Is there enough resources? Are we, are we keeping them in the right numbers and everything? And it's like, I don't know. It was, it was just a cool experience to be able to, to get them over here and reproduce them and to basically supply the world with a species that, that hasn't been in captivity for a long time. Hell yeah, man. That's awesome. <clears throat> That's really cool. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. Now we just need to get Pfizer to donate free Viagra and maybe people will stop blending them live into smoothies to get a boner, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing about that is um, the Inca didn't do that. That's not a new, tr- right. it's, it's a new trend. It's not something that, um, you know, their ancestors did. So it's kind of like, and you're dealing with that with sea turtle eggs and stuff like that too. It's like, um, I know we had a, a um, YouTube video on it from, uh, uh, what was it called? Through Vice. And you can go see them right. uh, mm-hmm. grinding them up in blenders and drinking them. And, you know, I, I don't care. I'm, I'm, I eat North American wildlife. You know, I'm a hunter, sure. hunter and a fisherman, sure. but don't, don't drive the species to extinction. And that's where you get into situations where we manage our wildlife in the United States and, um, you know, some developing countries, they don't have the ability to do that. Right. Yeah, there's a lot. Especially of in concert with the mining and, you know, there's other environmental degradation and stuff. It'd be one thing if that was it by itself, right? But if, in conjunction with these other horrors, it's it's too much. Over human population. Yeah. If we could solve that, that's a political thing to say on a podcast, but if we can fix that, I think we'll save biodiversity throughout the world. I would agree. Right. I mean, it's a clear a clear cost of, of that. You know the rapid growth of human population, and for sure, I mean, well, when you're doing, inherently so you're dealing with loss, <laughs> you know, you're dealing with loss of habitat, you're dealing with non-point pollution, you're dealing with global climate change, and then a fungus that's coming through that's creating a catalyst that is wiping out amphibian populations. It really isn't the environment. Yeah. The, I mean, we can talk all day about wanting to save animals, but if there's no place to put them, you know. Prime golden frog, the um, prime golden frog habitat is being developed by one of the largest mining companies in Latin America. And they are coming to Project Golden Frog saying, how can we help? And it's like, don't, don't build your mind. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. You know, and that's that's happening all over the world. Okay. But, yeah, I mean, that's the thing is, is, like, we have to be able to find solutions to coexist with animals. And um, it has to be on both sides. And it's it's a very difficult thing because you're you're dealing with, when you go to Africa and you look at African elephants, are they in the wild or are they on a reserve? There's boundaries on that reserve. 
that right. to me is not really the wild. Right. You know. Yeah. Even if. The... Well, like in Africa with elephants, I mean, hunting is incorporated into the entire plan for the reserve. Right. And cultures over there exist on the hunting. You know, I think a true, I'm not a trophy hunter. I would, anything that I would kill being a hunter, I would eat it. I don't, I don't kill anything that I don't eat. Sure. It's like talking to someone about, um, you don't believe in hunting, but you buy chicken from the grocery store. Right. Like, so, <laughs> right. so did you kill it, clean it, pluck it, prepare it? You know, it's like you're, there's a disassociation, especially with younger people. It's like, um, I go back to the anthropomorphic side of it um, and like think like the animals and think like, you know, try to understand the animals. Like I think a lot of younger people think all animals think like humans. Right. And that's not the case. And um, you have to kind of really realize that the reality with overpopulation of humans, um, we're losing wildland everywhere. Right. Yeah. And it's 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 sad to see, but it, it's a you know when you're dealing with all the other pressures with amphibians, and then throw a fungus, pathogenic fungus on it, and you know potentially ronavirus, or anything like that. You're, I mean, we can all talk about coronavirus right now. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, there does seem to be some, you know, knock on wood, whatever. I'm I'm hugely sympathetic to to everybody on it, you know, but it, it is one of those things that it's like, I think the fact that we're seeing it all over the place now that they're actually able to test for it suggests that maybe it's not as new as, it's not from December. It's probably the lesson of this is that it probably precedes when we kind of got wind of it and that there's probably been already, you know, been a ton of exposure to it. Well, it's coming down to, like, we're very good at the zoo about guest, guest experience. And, like, I pick up trash, like, when I'm walking around the zoo. Uh-huh. Like, the other day, I saw a tissue. And I was like, I'm not thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll let, I'll let somebody else come by with, with you know. The little grabber. Pickup tools. Right. I'm not touching it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I work with the public too, and I I thought the same exact thing. I'm like, well, we're gonna have to wait till maintenance comes through because I'm not touching that. Well, <laughs> but I mean, I mean, we have 2.5 million visitors come through the zoo through the year, and it's like anything I touch. I've I've had like pink eye from touching door handles and stuff from people walking through the zoo, and I'm like. Yeah, I'm not messing with coronavirus. No. You got to tell them about the – it, well, if it's open, you know, open for sharing, you should tell them about the, the whole bit with the kids putting their mouths on the, the salmonella on the Komodo exhibit or whatever. Oh, yeah, I can talk about that. So okay. before, before my time at the Denver Zoo, um, my director at the time, our director at the time told my curator, he goes, I can get us dragons. I can get us Komodo dragons. And my uh, my boss was like, well, 
if you get us Komodo dragons, you got to build me a, an exhibit for Komodo dragons because I'm not bringing in dragons with not, you know, a facility. So they built, it was probably a $15 million exhibit at the time. It'd probably be, you know, $50 million now. But uh, um, so they got the dragons in and they were younger and they were like bringing them out for the public to show. And they were, had this like little ring where they'd bring them out and the public would come up and get close up eye on the dragons. And uh, the dragon crossed over, you know, some part of the exhibit where kids were putting their hands on it. And then all these kids came down with salmonella. And um, if you know, obviously, if you're a reptile keeper, you probably have salmonella. You've probably been exposed to it. You probably are, you know, your body's probably adjusted to it. Um, But these kids are getting really sick from it. And the CDC came out and they swabbed the dragons and they swat and they found they'd made a direct correlation of the salmonella to the dragons. And it was a big deal. And, and, um, uh, it was like one of our older, older reptile keepers, the CDC was, was out there swabbing the dragons back and the keepers like what this dragon. And he totally like licked the back of the dragon (laughs) (laughs) and the, uh, um, the uh, the person there doing the the swabbing was like losing his mind, and it was like, <laughs> yeah, we have to be very concerned about that. That is a public, that's a zoonotic public issue, and we're going to have to make some changes on what we do with our dragons. But it was just kind of funny because it's like, you know, all the reptile keepers are like, right, all 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 of our animals have salmonella. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty great. Well, man, so we have some usual questions that we've run through. Um, and so two of them, and there's one right answer to this first one. Uh, and Eric, you'll appreciate this too. So if you go herping any place in the world, uh, and maybe with two people you're sharing a podcast with right now, uh, where might that be in, in the future? Maybe next May or so? Australia. <laughs> ah, nice. <laughs> We've never been. Yeah, I'm, I'm, let, I'm letting you guys develop that into an incredible reptile experience, and then I'll be down. Um, <laughs> yeah, most, all of my stuff has been in Central and South America, and I love it. I love the rainforest. Right. So anywhere I can go to a rainforest and experience it, because um, basically I work in a rainforest. Right. Um, and just to get, you know, it, this is probably my favorite place in the world. Well, I know it is besides, you know, probably pheasant hunting in Nebraska, but, um, rainforest for me, um, you know, just being able to, uh, um, like I was in, uh, Tombapata, which is a rainforest down, um, south of, uh, in, almost on the, uh, Bolivian border. And we were out at night frogging and, uh, I caught this frog that was a Phyromedusa bicolor, a big, giant, waxy, murky tree frog. Yeah. And my guide was like, that's, that's not a bicolor. He, he's calling it a Chaco. And I was like, okay. And I was like, no, you're wrong. I'm a zoologist. I know what I'm talking about. And then I left, uh-huh. the group left in front of me, and I stayed back. And he goes, the bicolors are way up in the canopy. And he goes, you can hear them. 
and I stopped and I, I got away from the group and sure enough, I could hear him calling up there. And I was like, I don't even have to see that animal. Just, just not that I can hear it. I'm alone in the rainforest and I can hear that thing way up in the canopy. That was like a really cool experience. So any tropical rain, I, I love all, I mean, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> I did, I did a, an amphibian school in North Carolina and we caught 53 species. And I was like, it was with Dustin, my buddy Dustin, and I was like, dude, this, there's more, there's as much diversity here than there is in the tropics. And he goes, I know, man, this is awesome. Um, so yeah, anything, I love going out at night and looking for frogs and, and photographing them. That's probably my favorite thing. Okay. That's cool. Right on, man. Okay, except and I, so this will be it. Except for the trip where I can wear mosquito repellent and I got <laughs> chowed and probably, probably have a tropical disease right now. Yeah. Right, you're going to get scalped by a monkey. We, you know, I, I don't think we have time to get into the time you thought you had a bot fly and it was actually petrified, what a petrified thorn in your arm. Um, yeah, that, I that was it. certainly something. Um, no, it was um, it was when I was in uh, Iquitos, and my uh, friend, my keeper, was behind me. He goes, "Look at the back of your arm," and it was just like black with mosquitoes. And I was like, 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 just like you know, swiping my arm and getting them off of me. And I was like, I can't do it. I can't do it anymore. Oh God! I can't do this. And. Um, we started walking out of the out of the rainforest, and the guide went up to a termite mound and punched a hole into it and grabbed a bunch of termites and and put them all over his skin. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I was like, "Dude, why didn't you tell me that? Why didn't you tell me that that's the thing? <laughs> it's like a natural insect." Oh, wow. <laughs> I and then I was in, <laughs> and then I was in Panama. And I ran out of water and we were hiking up rivers and streams. And I was like, I'm out of water and I'm dying. And we're like coming upon this village where all the water was coming out of the village. And uh, one of my friends was like, don't do it. Don't do it. And I was like, I got have some water. And he goes, don't do it. And so I filled my can or my, my can bladder. It was one of those camel packs yeah. up with water. And I, I drank the whole thing. And he goes, dude, you're oh. gonna get sick. You're gonna have a disease. And then I look over the guide, and he's cutting off vines and drinking out of them. <laughs> and I was like, why didn't you tell me you can drink water out of the vines? <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Right on. And then, so if so, this is the the secondary question would be if you could work with any animal, and this would be either at the zoo or at your house, um, laws, um, so legality, money, not an issue. What what would you want to work with most of all? What's the white whale at this point? Well, it's different between me privately and for the zoo. Um, I think for the zoo, I have a bucket list of stuff that I want us to work with. I would really like to see us work with pranny monitors. That's one of yeah. my bucket list species. Um, 
And I think privately, I really enjoy glass frogs. Um, and yeah. I'd like to work more. If I started up my home private collection again, I'd probably focus on different species of Central and South American glass frogs. Just because you can see through them, you can see their heartbeat and their their bones are green. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. And those have become much more available recently, right, in the last five years than they were 15 years ago. I remember when you got oh, them yeah. 15 or so years ago. You got the fake glass yeah. frogs and then you got some actual ones. They're, they're, yeah, they are becoming more available. They're, they're, they're kind of a weird frog because, um, I mean, like if you're maintaining your terrarium and like trimming it down, you could very easily throw them away <laughs> because they're see-through and they're, they're not a good exhibit animal. Cause like at the zoo, we have to, you know, I'd like to work with glass frogs, but to the general public to come see a glass frog in an exhibit, it's going to be laying under a leaf sleeping all day. Um, but like I would come down, I had uh, uh, Valeri, um, the central, the uh, uh, Costa Rican um, glass frogs, uh, uh, was it, Surrounded, I can't remember the genus, um, but they, um, I would come down at night and look at them and they were like spiders. They didn't really hop, mm -hmm. they like, they would like climb around the exhibit and they were like, if they laid eggs, the males were like territorial of them. They're just like, they're just one of my favorite species. That's cool. Cool. Had a lot of a trachea, I think that's the genus. I think that's right, yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate yeah. it. We've been, we've been talking about it for a while and stuff. And, the time it worked out and all, and I think right it's, on, it's different. It's different than what we mostly do, so I think it's really good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Well, I guess Appreciate I think it. it's uh, kind of give the zoo perspective and and you know what I've been through being on the private side and the and the and the zoological side is is important for people to kind of understand that um, I work for the Denver Zoo. We are a product of. Um, you know, our community um, and like, you know, there's, there's been controversial between private and, and zoos and public and like, you know, it even gets down to like, you know, somebody does something wrong on a permit and gets all their animals confiscated and the zoos get it and then the zoos get a bad name for, for um, you know, helping out, you know, fish and wildlife or whatever, but we're still one of the same and I think we still need to collaborate and work together and find ways to, to, you know, have the hobby, have the, have the, you know, herpetoculture be an important part, but also um, collaborate because we are losing animals at a vast rate. And I don't think zoos, aquariums and botanical gardens can save everything. And I think that in order for us to try and help, uh, conserve biodiversity, we're going to have to work together. Right. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Because we all love the animals. We're all, we're all in it for the same thing. It's just, uh, you know, time's running out with a lot of species. Yeah, man. Agreed. Cool, cool man. Well, thanks. Thanks for the call. Yeah, man. 
Yeah, thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank you, man. When are you guys really out? appreciate it. What, a week and a half, something like that? And then, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but then, even Tom was supposed to come on this trip, too. He, he missed... He missed out on Darwin, missed out on this one. He's got to come on the next one. That's the pressure. So. <laughs> yeah, man. I'm in. Don't sleep in. again. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. All right, man. All right, man. Thank you. Talk All right. To you. Be safe. Thanks. All right. Later. All right. Bye. All right. That was cool, man. That was very cool. Um Definitely a cool perspective from the uh, from the zoo side of things for sure. So, yeah, no doubt. I appreciate that. I've been talking to him about it for a while. I do think it's a different perspective, and um, you know, he's a super cool dude, a mentor to me for sure, hundred uh, percent, for a long time. So it's um, it's weird. Yeah, to hear would not you be have a mentor. Because <laughs> you're yeah, usually right? the mentor, mentor or whatever the, uh, you know, the other side of it. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, 100%. We all do. So, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, yeah cool. So. Cool, cool, cool. Um, I, uh, you want to show your stuff and, and we'll head out, man. Yeah, uh, I'm going to be on... Um, carpetpythons.com.au this Friday night um, doing a live stream. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, Carpet Fest because now Carpet Fest has officially made its way to Australia. Um, and, uh, nice. you know, they're just trying to uh, create some of that, uh, um, uh, you know, what would you call it? Camaraderie between the Morelia community. Uh, they're trying to replicate that down in Australia and trying to bring those guys together and, uh, you know, uh, just kind of chill out and get to know each other and that kind of thing. So that's, uh, that's good to see. And, uh, of course we'll be talking about carpet pythons and, uh, I'm sure we'll squeeze in, uh, some Imbricata talk in there and, uh, and whatnot. But, uh, I guess I have to be ready because this is a video thing uh <laughs> i'm used yeah, to being behind the mic uh without the uh without the video but uh but this will be a video so it'll be cool so uh, all right what is this port city pythons <laughs> you know it was funny the other night i was uh well me well, we did the last show with garrett um he was on skype and i was on skype and i got to watch him most of the thing and i was like I was sitting there thinking, and I know I can say this now because Owen's not here, but <laughs> I was like, you know, it would be so easy just to do this and put it up on YouTube, you know, just like, I'm like, no, Owen would punch me in the face. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Well, and I'll, I'll uh, do a, uh, what, a six months, well, yeah, nine month early airing of grievances that if it's not available on a podcast app, it's not a podcast. So don't call it a podcast unless I can download it on a podcast app. That's correct. But you can, but you will just get an additional uh, video of the little, little bonus speech. bonus video content. Yeah. yeah. It, is that the case with Maynard's thing as well at this point? Uh, 
Yeah, I believe you should so. encourage it if it's not. Okay. If, if it's you should put the screws to it, and if it's not, then say it's not a podcast. If it's not accessible in that way, and you know, it's right. just I, as a non-premium YouTube subscriber, you know, I, I can't access that stuff very easily without right. without it. I'm going to. Uh, I'll get that right out of the gate. <laughs> Go right for the throat, throat, man. Just be hung up on or something, you know. (laughs) So, nah. Oh gosh, it's all good. Blame me, man. Just blame me. Throw me right under the bus. It's fine. As the de facto Owen for tonight's show, just throw me under the bus. That's the way it goes. (laughs) Right on. Uh All right, so so we got that going on, and then um, yeah. uh, I do have uh, a couple carpet cliff notes ready uh, and ready to go and on deck. And um, I don't know if we're, yeah, I guess we'll do this one first and then uh, the next episode will come out, uh, whatever. Uh, but anyway, <clears throat> that's all. <laughs> I'm tired, man. I'm tired. I'm, I'm, I'm getting delirious. Oh, okay. We're getting for, you old school, man. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? You I'm know, not, I'm not used to this, uh, to this late night stuff. You know, throwback Mondays. <laughs> what am I, Conan O'Brien or something? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, yeah. Right. Um, so, uh, if you want to follow us, Murray Python Radio, uh, you can check out our website, MurrayPythonRadio.net. Uh, if you want to send us an email and chat with us, info at MurrayPythonRadio.com. Um, and, uh, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, all that kind of stuff. Uh, for me, EB Morelia, um, and you can, uh, find me there all over the place. Um, <clears throat> Owen's not here. Rogue Reptiles. Uh, I think it's rogue-reptiles.com, uh, and Facebook and, Instagram <laughs> and all that stuff. Uh, and, uh, yeah, go ahead, Rob, throw your stuff out there and we'll get the heck out of here. Yeah, just high plane chirp on Instagram. That's sort of where I'm at these days and try and put up some cool pictures. Lots of uh, Solomon Island tree boa pictures lately, you know, which is cool. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, one cool one. And they're starting to color up a little bit last year's babies and stuff. And yeah, yeah. I know people are probably, it's funny. It's one of those things that it's like people. Generally speaking, oh, since they weren't available and weren't imported for 15 years, it's like, okay, everyone's super excited about it. And then, you know, seven of nine pick my most re- seven of my most recent nine pictures are, you know, Kandoi Australis, and people are just like, yeah, who gives a shit, man? So, <laughs> <laughs> do stuff for yourself, not for the likes, man. That's my right. advice. Right. Amen. Okay. Yeah. Uh, cool, man. Cool. Uh, Thank you for listening to Morelia Python Radio. Good night.